Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. In the year 2017, an innocent man accused of a crime has a choice. Hard time or prime time. Sensational. Perfect contestant. I want him. He must pay or play the running man. On your mark. I'll be back. Rated TV show in history. Because they want us to stay. It's a game between life and death. Can you lift? Schwarzenegger is the running man. He's playing for a prize. The prize is his life. Out with the life. The running man. Welcome to the projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Aaron Peterson. I'm so excited. Let's kick some ice. Oh, wait, it's wrong. Schwarzenegger movie. My bad. Also joining us in the booth this week is Mr. Andrew Netty. Who do you love? By 2017, the world economy has collapsed. Sounds about right. Food, natural resources, and oil are in short supply. Check. A police state divided into paramilitary zones rules with an iron hand. Getting there. Television is controlled by the state, and a sadistic game show called The Running Man has become the most popular program in history. All art, music, and communications are censored. No dissent is tolerated, and yet, a small resistance movement has managed to survive underground. Hashtag resist. When high-tech gladiators are not enough to suppress people's yearning for freedom, much more direct methods become necessary. That is the prologue to The Running Man, and it sets up pretty well what we're going to be talking about. Now I'm going to give you my usual warning about spoilers. Along with The Running Man, we'll also be discussing a few other manhunting movies, including The Millions Game, The Prize of Peril, aka The Price of Danger, and maybe a few others along the way. So if you don't want anything ruined, turn off the podcast and come back when you're ready. We will still be here. Aaron, when was the first time you saw The Running Man and what did you think? I saw The Running Man in this 14-year-old kid. I was a big Arnold Schwarzenegger fan, you know, as people were in the 80s. 
And I was also a Stephen King fan. And I had ju- I think I just learned, like I had just learned that Richard Bachman was also Stephen King. I was really excited to see it. I was actually extremely disappointed when I saw the movie because if you read the book, it's not the book at all. And I did read the books. So I was I was actually a little disappointed. But in terms of an Arnie movie, it was fun. How about you, Andrew? I saw it uh, when it was released in 1987. It was good. I thought it was entertaining, I suppose. I probably dismissed it back then as another Arnie movie, uh, another Schwarzenegger movie. And it's actually, it's it's strange. I mean, I'm sure we'll get onto this. It's strange rewatching it. It's actually much better on a rewatch than it was when I, you know, I felt much, much more positive about it on a rewatch than I did when I first saw it. I also saw this one theatrically, which is weird. We usually do not have three people that saw the movie original in its theatrical run, so this is pretty neat. I saw it when I was maybe 15 years old, and I don't remember if I had read the Bachman books at that point or not. I was a pretty big Arnold Schwarzenegger fan at this point. Uh, really loved things. I loved things that people didn't tend to love. I loved him in, uh, well, Commando, which everybody loves, but Raw Deal. For some reason, I really like Raw Deal. Yes. Yeah. All right. Great. Good. And uh, I really liked The Running Man. And now going back to it, I can see where it might not be one of the major Schwarzeneggers. It's it's not necessarily Commando. It's not necessarily Predator. It's not the Terminator. But it almost feels like a deconstruction of an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie because the one-liners in this movie are amazing. And that they play with his persona and Richard Dawson's persona fantastic i really have a a lot of fun with this movie and getting to see yafet koto in spandex that's a major plus all the time the bachman book that this was based on the running man and yes richard bachman stephen king same person though they write well they write similarly but it seemed like it used to be bachman was more sci-fi and then King was more horror, and this one definitely fell fell into the sci-fi. And with this one, Stephen King is very well read. And I'm sure that he was a fan of Richard Sheckley because this movie, the story, everything is very, very Richard Sheckley. Now, if people aren't familiar with him, he wrote things like The Seventh Victim, which was the tenth victim, the movie. He wrote Immortality, Inc., which ended up being Free Jack, which we talked about on the show a long time ago. And he has this real penchant for most dangerous game scenarios. Like if you go out and you look at his short story and his novel, uh, his bibliography, you're going to see a lot of things where you're just like, is this the same book as this other one? Because there's one like Hunter, Hunter, Victim, Victim. And it's like, oh, okay. But yeah, he really likes this whole idea of people hunting people. And this fits right into this sweet spot. And now his short story, which was The Prize of Peril, was actually shot twice, uh, one as The Millions Game and one as The Price of Danger. And in my opinion, the now uh, let me say this the right way, the movie of The Running Man is closer to The Millions Game movie than The Running Man movie is to the Richard Bachman book. Do you guys agree with that? It's definitely closer than the book is, because I don't think The Running Man is like the Bachman book at all. So, yeah, I would agree with that. I do like the Bachman story, though. I really like the way it's put together. I mean, the interesting thing about The Running Man book, The Bachman Story, it's a, it's a pretty down-and-dirty, hard-boiled novel. I mean, it's basically – it's got none of the 
none of the glitz or glamour of the Running Man film. It's basically, you know, this set in this depressed, ultra-depressed, economically depressed, environmentally polluted America where people are basically, basically instead of social security, it seems people basically volunteer to um, go on these sort of lethal sort of, you know, game shows of which The Running Man is the most popular one. And it's basically about this man who, you know, daughter needs an operation, doesn't have the money for the operation, so he, he, he volunteers to take part in The Running Man. But it's really downbeat and really hard-boiled. It's very violent. I mean, I presume we, there's no problems with spoilers in novels that that final scene in the novel where he basically flies a hijacked plane into the into the building that is that is the headquarters of the TV um, station that shows the Running Man. It's pretty, it's pretty hardcore. It is very, very hardcore. And yeah, there's no coincidence that we're dropping this episode on September 11th because the reading the Bachman story again uh, years after 9-11, it was like, oh my god, this is so creepy. I mean, I'm sure there have been so many things. There was a Lone Gunman episode. There are so many stories where people fly planes in the buildings, but this one being this dystopian novel and the way that King presents it, and especially the last line of the story where they talk about fire raining down within 20 blocks of the building, yeah, it really kind of sketched me out when I went back to reread this. The other thing about the book I thought was interesting, if I remember correctly, I read it a few weeks ago, it's actually the police who hunt down the contestants on The Running Man. So in a sense, The, the Running Man is this like pan-American show. It goes all – they're basically let loose, into Ameri- let loose into a city and they basically have to avoid the police and the uh, police just hunt them down and they, they get money essentially for, for how long they can um, avoid essentially being executed by the cops. And right around 2001, I remember Matt Damon and Ben Affleck had a TV show, which was basically a person on the run, kind of a reality game show. And that got killed right around then because of the hunt for Osama bin Laden, which would then take however many years before he was actually caught, captured, killed, if you buy into that. And I know there are conspiracy theories that he wasn't, but whatever. And now there is a television show called The Runner, which sounds very, very similar. So it's just like people have been wanting to have this type of show for a long time, which is kind of crazy to me. So it just feels like the closer we get to, and now we're in 2017, the more we're getting into this idea of uh, this gladiatorial type game for pleasure. We're so totally there. I mean, there was a news report last year about a Russian entrepreneur was organizing a game in the Siberian wilderness where basically people would be let loose into the Siberian wilderness and they would have to hunt each other down. Um, I think it was a sort of, um, I think it was a bit of a, a publicity stunt, obviously, because nothing has appeared since then. But the fact is, this was reported seriously in all the, in a lot of the online news. If you really look at it, it's been building up to it for for years. I mean, Survivor really kicked things off. You've got people, they're willing to go butt naked in the middle of nowhere and try to survive. When there's somebody who can, you know, extend an olive branch five feet away, but they'd rather not because they want money. How how far? And then they're looking for love and they're doing it for money. How far would it really take a leap for you guys to really think that somebody would be willing to kill another human being for money? I, I really don't think it's a big leap. 
one of the things that I bring up later on in the interviews is the whole idea of American Gladiators, which totally took from the Running Man, uh, the movie, insofar as the costumes and the idea of these overly muscled wrestler type characters who are battling people and it's non-lethal combat in that one but it's very close to what we're doing with like Wipeout or most extreme elimination challenge and these kind of things but rather than uh, what was uh, american ninja challenge all these kind of things but rather than it being just a um, obstacle course it's actually a person who's trying to knock these guys off this is malibu the cool laid-back surfer at home on the beach You're looking at Lace, feminine, sexy, but always a lady. This is Gemini, a split personality, calm one minute, violent the next. This is Zap, strong, silent, the Terminator. You're looking at Nitro, cocky, explosive, and always aggressive. And this is Sunny, the all-American woman. These are the American gladiators. From Universal Studios, Hollywood, this is the American Gladiators. We were just steps away from Sub-Zero and Dynamo <laughs> and these guys. Buzzsaw would have had big, you know, puffy things on his wrists rather than Buzzsaws, but it would have been right there. So we've been playing with this concept for the last almost 20 years now. We've been playing with it for a lot longer than that. I mean, obviously, the obvious the obvious um, historical parallel is gladiators. You can also see – I think, to be honest, you can also see a lot of this in, in those passion plays, which are those, uh, depending on where they're staged, you know, quite gruesome recreations of the crucifixion of Christ, which are sort of staged all around the world, I think, around Easter. And, I mean, the other thing that, that strikes me as, as feeding directly into this is the way that um, – Certain groups like Al Qaeda, you know, have, have you know they started distributing graphic execution videos on you know on limited basis in you know as early as two thousand and four. And I mean some you know some some groups in the Islamic State you know it, it packages footage of executions um, of prisoners of war and Western hostages you know and sometimes that they actually do it in front of the you know in front of populations in actual former Roman amphitheaters. So I mean we're we're, we're actually in some respects already there. Right, and in a lot of respects, way worse than what we have in this science fiction movie. You don't even get—I mean, you don't even get a copy of the Running Man game if you know. In some of these, <laughs> it's, it's, it's terrible. I so want a copy of that Running Man game. Every time I rewatch the, when I rewatch this film, I rewatched it a couple of times for this show, and every time a contestant gets a copy of the Running Man game, I just think, oh, I want that. I, I really wonder how much would it really take in this day and age. You know, at least in the movie, you have. You have a reason. They have a reason to run. You you can get freedom or you can get a contract. There's something – there's some advantageous reason for them to do this, play this game. I really think people today, if you've actually made this game, we'll chase you down. You'll sign a waiver and you know basically your life is forfeit if we catch you, but you might escape. And if you do, I think people would do that for celebrity at this point. Shock, awe, and celebrity. I, I really believe it's not far from that. I can see Johnny Fairplay playing this game. I want to talk about Ben Richards a little bit because we've talked about this on other episodes uh, where we've talked about Arnold in movies. Arnold Schwarzenegger as the personality, Arnold Schwarzenegger as the main character. 
Ben Richards. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Is another major deviation between the story and the film because Ben Richards of the of the book of the the Bachman story, he's just a normal dude. Arnold Schwarzenegger, I love the guy, but he cannot play a normal dude. The guy is a monster. He cannot be the everyman. And that's always one of those things that I wonder, and we got to see this a little bit, right? And we got to see just how horrible it was, but we got to see what a normal quote unquote dude playing Quaid from uh, Total Recall, what that looked like. Because I always wondered, oh, what would it be like if you had cast, I don't know, Jim Carrey in this role rather than Arnold Whoa. Schwarzenegger? I, no, no, okay. no. <laughs> but I'm just saying, now. okay, so Colin Farrell in this role rather than right. Arnold Schwarzenegger. All right. it, Total Recall, the remake, was a disaster, and I don't think it was necessarily Colin Farrell's fault. I think it was Len Weissman's fault. But you can't have Ben Richard just be a normal dude when you have Arnold Schwarzenegger playing him, so you have to amp up everything. And I think that that is where this movie's strength really is, is just how out of bounds, out of the box, just fucking off the chain this movie is. And it just plays so well in that idea of this futuristic society, this uh, wild uh, spandex-clad, bread and circuses, television show, everything I think works because they played Arnold's strengths in this rather than playing him as a normal guy. Because we get two relatively normal guys in here. We have Yafet Koto as William Laughlin, and we've got Marvin J. McIntyre as Harold Weiss, these two dudes that come along for the ride with him and we see how they fare and i can't imagine this movie having it starring marvin j mcintyre i think you needed the outrageousness of arnold schwarzenegger don't you think they tailored it to him though i mean they adjusted the movie specifically to his personality the whole the whole thing is over the top every aspect about its look its plot it's it's everything about those bizarre stalkers is just completely over the top. And and the thing is, I, I don't know, as I said, I wasn't particularly impressed in 1987, but now I just think it works. And I I also really love the way it's just bang, we're straight into it, you know, where we've got a few minutes in the helicopter where they establish Arnie's background story. Then we're into that into the, into the prison break in that uh, disused and, according to the director, massively toxic um, former steelworks they use as the prison. Terrific. It's just terrific. I really believe it's an 80s Arnie thing because I really I think Arnie of today could play it. 
I think he he's really evolved as an actor. I mean, Maggie and uh, I don't remember what the Stallone movie. He did a Stallone movie where Stallone was locked up. Escape Plan, I think it was. Cheesy action movie, but he was really good in it. I, he can act now. It's like it's, he's after he got out of being a governor, he's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start acting now. And he's he's done a great job, I think. I think he could play the role as originally written now where he couldn't before. No, I think he'll always be the Terminator. And every, 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 everything I see him in, even when he was the Californian governor, I just think Terminator. It almost feels like a deconstruction of other Arnold films because obviously he uses his I'll be back line, which re- literally stops the film in its tracks, which is amazing. <laughs> and there are things in here, and now it's no coincidence that Stephen E. D'Souza wrote this and he also wrote Commando, but there are a lot of things that remind me of Commando in this. The, well, the ugly shirt that he wears at the airport reminds me of the ugly shirt that the one guy wears on the airplane. The use of Maria Conchita Alonso as this unwilling pawn. Uh, there's even a moment where she betrays him, which is very much like Radon Chong in Commando when she's at the mall and betrays uh, Arnold in that. So there are so many things. And then, of course, the one-liners. And the one-liners, you know, the famous Arnold Schwarzenegger post-death one-liners they seem so outrageous and so kind of wedged into this one. Now, I love them. Absolutely love them. You know, what happened to Buzzsaw? He had to split. Those kind of things. But they just feel like they're obligatory at this point than necessarily the way that they just kind of slid right into what happened to Sully. I had to let him go. For some reason, they work more like punchlines in this film than they did in the other ones, though the other ones were, you know, hey, Bennett, let off some steam. They're all just kind of jokey things, but this one, it just feels like they stand out a little bit more. It's almost like a fourth wall breaking thing at, at different points where it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger is just knocking on their screen going, hey, I, I'm, I'm well aware it's not the movie you thought it was going to be, but I'm here. It did. Every time it happened, took me kind of out of the movie. The Sub-Zero one was almost like my dad was making a joke. It's just like, oh, no. Here is Sub-Zero. Now, Plane Zero. But I love him. I love every single one of those. He's one of those action icons that has a knack to believe. He he immerses himself in the ridiculousness. He isn't above. He has. He doesn't have that that problem some actors do where they can't just swallow their pride and deliver it as cheesy as it's meant. I mean, he just goes for it, and I think it, it works for him. He really adjusts for that. The reason it works is that how do you? I don't know if playfulness is the right word, but he just he just gets into the vibe of the whole movie. He's, he's not above it. He's happy. As you say, he's almost spoofing himself. He's almost, and, um, and he does this in a lot of his films. And I think, again, it's um, something that's developed over, over his career. You know, the, the audio commentary for the film, that's something they, they make, they make very clear too, is that, you know, the, that glasses come in, not, you know, two weeks late on the film. He's really worried. How's he going to make this work? Oh, he's got, he's got to deal with Schwarzenegger, this massive star. And actually Schwarzenegger is really cool. You know, they, they sit down, they talk him, and once basically they've they've established some ground rules. Schwarzenegger is a real is basically a real soldier. Just does the film, does what he's supposed to do, knows what he's supposed to do to make this film work. Um, and I think that really comes across in the final product. You know, Schwarzenegger is not looking for any deep psychosocial dystopian themes from this film. They're, they're there, and I mean, obviously we'll talk about them later. He just makes a good 
sci-fi action sort of spoof type film. When it works too that he the way that his character has his arc that he starts off as this guy who follows the book but when he's told to fire on unarmed civilians that's when he's had too much and he stops and he say you know to hell with you I will not fire on these people. Though I have to say, the other people in the helicopter, they seem to really dislike this guy. I wonder what he's like outside of this one particular incident, if he's kind of a pain in the ass or what. Because these guys just – they fall on him like nobody's business. Oh, great. Brent Richards is acting up. Let's kick this guy's ass. Um, and we get to hear the first of many of my favorite Arnold Schwarzenegger guttural acting, that whole – kind of thing that he does. I love when he does that stuff. Then he's immediately set into prison, and so he's – with these underground people, though he doesn't necessarily know about the underground, he doesn't believe in these people, he doesn't believe in their cause, and when they escape from this prison scenario, it is really, see you guys, wouldn't want to be a, he is just fine going about his way, but the system won't let him escape and get away that easy. And that prison setup is... I mean, that's where we are really first introduced to the science fiction elements of the story. Yes, we get that prologue that I read at the beginning. We get a little bit of sci-fi insofar as the radar is a little bit more advanced than we would typically think when he's there firing or supposed to fire on these people having this food riot. But really, when we get to the prison, I mean, we've seen these explosive collars that they have and other things like Wedlock comes out a few years after this, the Rutger Hauer film. Of course, they're used like crazy in Battle Royale, which is another great people hunting people type movie. But the, this element of them and especially the element of the guy who's trying to turn off those sensors and the one guy who's running across and they're desperately trying. And I thought for sure that he was going to make it. And when he doesn't and the collar explodes and his head just pops off. Fantastic. I love that moment. That is one of those great ultraviolet moments. It really kind of sets the stage for what we're going to see in the rest of this movie. You know, the use of convicts and exploding, exploding devices on collars has a long, has a, you know, quite a deep film lineage, doesn't it? I mean, you've got, you've also got, uh, Lucio Fulci's Rome 2072, the new gladiators. They have exploding wristlets. Uh, you've got, um, have you ever seen that terrible, that, that terrible film, The Condemned? Oh, yeah. You know, Ten, ten, ten convicts plucked from various third world hellhole prisons and put in an island in the South Pacific where they're offered a chance to to win their freedom by fighting to the death and to make sure that they actually all take part in the games. They're all basically made to wear exploding ankle bracelets. So you're ex, you're explode your implanted exploding device on your your convict death game inmate is a uh, almost a genre in itself. Right, you could even point to something like that implant that they give to uh, Kurt Russell in Escape from New York. If you don't do this job by this amount of time, this thing is going to go off and you're dead. That whole world is what I felt like a lot watching Running Man. I, I felt like because Paul Michael Glazer was brought in last minute, so he obviously had to do. Th- I mean, he was from a TV background, so that worked for him. He could just pick up and go. But I, I really felt like he was emulating Carpenter's work to a degree. And throughout the entire movie, when little things happen outside of the Arnie moments, the moments that are 100 percent Arnold Schwarzenegger, a lot of the movie felt very much like Escape from New York to me in, in terms of vibe, aesthetic, that sort of thing. So I, I had that Escape from New York flashback. And that's one of my favorite movies, which probably doesn't help. But that just kept like hitting me in the back of the head when I was watching this again. 
Yeah, it's all it's all garish. It's dark. That that techno pop soundtrack they have, which is very similar to a lot of the sort of soundtracks they had in those sort of eighties SF sort of films. I mean, the costumes. I agree. It's all very um, it's all very redolent of uh, Escape from New York and films like that. They're all drinking from the same sort of cultural zeitgeist. I think fascist filmmaking. Well, speaking of fascists, I was reminded a lot of RoboCop while I was watching this. And the idea of the, well, the cynicism and then also playing with television. Uh, I wish that this had had more commercials because I, there's just like a one real brief commercial break for climbing for dollars. And I really wish I would have seen more of the stuff that's on this television network and seen more of this state controlled TV. We do get to see Captain Freedom's workout, which I really enjoy, especially, I mean, Jesse Ventura is amazing in this film and he's so underused to me. I really wish there had been more Jesse the Body Ventura and he fits in perfectly with this because of this whole idea of the, the professional wrestler aesthetic that they're going for. All of these characters, when we get to the gladiators they all have their shtick they've got their particular weapons they've got their particular modes of transport they've got their catchphrases all of these kind of things and uh, jesse is perfect for that but there's also this game that's being played in the movie where he is constantly getting interrupted and getting short shrift throughout the entire movie and so it kind of works that he never gets the spotlight because he just keeps getting fucked with throughout everything and even when he's there doing captain freedom's workout he doesn't necessarily get interrupted but the program our watching the program gets interrupted because this is our introduction to the maria conchita alonzo character and this is when arnold comes in and they have their tete-a-tete about her helping him out and uh, so very much like i said that ray don chong kind of thing from commando and when they're discussing this stuff, we get little glimpses of Captain Freedom, but not very much. But we do get some of the best stuff, especially him like kind of like scooting across the screen. And he just looks so fucking goofy. I love it. I think there's a poster, a background poster in one of the scenes for The Hate Boat, which is sort of that a spoof on that popular series, The Love Boat. Uh, what I would have loved to have seen an ad for The Hate Boat. I would have, there we have like Confession. I mean, all of the, you talked about the Running Man home game. And now I imagine you actually want the actual running man home game but just the design of the props and everything is so good in this and everything to do with the television station is fantastic and speaking of the casting of richard dawson was one of the strokes of brilliance that this movie has richard dawson for the younger people in the audience he was such a fixture on 70s and into the 80s television he was one of the best players on match game i always love to talk about match game on here if richard was your guy in those final rounds almost guaranteed you're going to win because he was just always on point with those things and when he got his own television show when he got family feud was so great. And I used to be so creeped out by him when I was a kid, just the way that he was always mauling these women and kissing them and doing that whole, come here, darling, all that kind of stuff. And it took me years to figure out that this guy was probably soused out of his mind and just doing this because it was an easy paycheck. And his role as Killian, he kind of plays with that, but then he is this fantastic villain. He is the villain. He's the only person from the corporate world that we see. We don't see the president. We don't see the attorney. 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. In general, none of that stuff. He's the face, and he's such a perfect face for this oppressive government. Someone was uh, politely suggesting that his uh, persona in The Running Man was not entirely dissimilar to his persona in real life on a lot of, you know, behind the scenes on a lot of those quiz shows. I'll be honest, after I saw the movie originally, I pretty much saw him that way for the, for the rest of his <laughs> career. Every time I saw him on Family Feud, I'm like, that guy's going to go kill some fucking person in five minutes. Arrest him. Arrest him now. He's bad. Every time I saw him. <laughs> It was so smart to put him in here, and he just plays to the camera so well. And those behind-the-scenes stuff, those moments when he is trying to figure out who's going to be the next contestant on the show, and when he's dealing with the network, when he's asking for the president's agent on the phone, when the person on the other end of the phone doesn't know who, speaking of uh, nautical-themed shows, he doesn't know who Gilligan's Island is. And I appreciate that, too, that this movie has so many television references, but nobody gets them. Like there's another moment when somebody talks about, I think it's Mick Fleetwood when he says, you know, uh, when he calls somebody, Mr. Spock and the other person's just like, who's Mr. Spock. So many nice little touches to this. I want to know why this was his last movie role. I mean, this was his last, his final film. And as far as I can tell, this was great. It was very well received. People loved him in it. I mean, I could have I could have seen him having an Alan Rickman like career. He was just that good at being awful. And I, I really was shocked that this was his final movie. I mean, I just don't know why his career didn't go somewhere acting wise after this. I mean, I could have saw him. I, I know Steven D'Souza wrote this and Die Hard. I could have I could have seen him as Hans Gruber or something like that. He was that good. I really genuinely believe that. God, I just recast him as Hans Gruber in my mind, thinking of him doing some of those lines. Wow. He'd kiss all the women in the, in the, uh, the party. He would. He'd just walk Come here, Holly. Come here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So again, Arnold is kind of put into this world when he gets captured for the second time and they say he's going to be the next contestant for the running man. And he finally does the right thing. Like he's done the right thing by refusing to, kill these innocent civilians uh, who are having this riot, but he does the right thing by trying to protect his two buddies from prison. You know, it's either you become a contestant on the running man or they become contestants on the running man. And he does that thing. He, he sacrifices himself. And so it's just a nice Richard Dawson turn of the knife when both of those guys are put into these pods and also shot along with him into the game. And, 
that moment, uh, Andrew, you mentioned the passion plays. The moment when those pods turn around, the way that their bodies are in these pods, it always reminds me of the crucifixion. Just it's this weird, unnatural way that their bodies are being held in these things. And just the way that their heads are turned and stuff, it just always looks like, well, first off, it looks like the most uncomfortable position in the world. But I'm always reminded of like, uh, what, what the, the mountain where, the mount where, uh, Christ was convicted, was crucified. And you've got, you know, the two guys on either side and then you've got Arnold in the middle. And then when they get out of the pods, I totally agree. And when they get out of the pods, they have to walk down this sort of like hallway surrounded by a jeering crowd of all these sort of guys and women and men in sort of what looks like sort of death metal costumes, you know, they're sort of looked like the extras from Mad Mab just walked out of Mad Max or something like that. I mean, mm-hmm. they have to go do this walk of shame as they're sort of pelted with rocks and things. That capsule scene given again, all pre I mean the whole thing, pre CGI. And some some quite uh nifty little effects. I mean, let's not talk about Dynamo. We just park park aside aside from the the lamest you can just imagine Dynamo Always shorting out, always short fusing, always accidentally giving himself electric shocks. I mean, he is the lamest stalker of all of them with those weird sort of Christmas lights on him. The others at least had a, had a sort of had a, had a veneer of being threatening, but I just thought Dynamo, an extremely overweight guy in an electric suit. No. Possibly of all time, honestly. That is one of the worst costume designs I think I've ever seen in a film. And, they, and I've and seen they, some bad ones. Yeah, and they spoofed that brilliantly. I think you made this point when, you know, finally Jesse Ventura, Captain Freedom, is called in to fight and he walks into the control room and he's got all this crappy sort of plastic armor that's half falling off. And he's saying, what is, what is this? You know, you expect me to you expect me to fight these guys you know, in, in this crap sort of, you know, um, this, this ridiculous armor. And, of course, he's just terrified to go in. But um, I think that's a really good scene. And they're all going, oh, God, what does he want now? I love the Amber character as well, where she's kind of finding out that things aren't necessarily the way that they seem. She she kind of reminds me of the – I can't remember the actress's name – who is uh, working for the television station, and they live. And in this one, she works for the television station. She writes jingles for the for the TV station. And she – so she's got this in there, and she's finding out that things aren't necessarily what they seem. She manages to find the original footage of the massacre, where now uh, Ben Richards is the butcher of Bakersfield. She sees that and realizes – is that things aren't really what's happening. You are fake news. And I also love this whole thing. And this might be, again, me reading way too much into this film. But the whole idea of these three quote-unquote winners of the game, uh, Whitman, Price, and Haddad, and they show them in clips where they're like saying bon voyage and they're walking off into the sunset, you know, off to their amazing existence in the Caribbean. They really remind me of the three traitors, quote unquote, from 1984, which is Aronson Jones and Rutherford, where they are being set up as these horrible criminals, even though we see them, you know, peacefully sipping victory gin in one of the bars. But these guys are just uh, vilified by the state. And it just seems like in the way that they're vilified by the state in 1984, they need to have three winners in the running man world because we want to show that, yes, you too can be a winner, though 
as Amber finds out in a pretty horrific scene, and a scene that kind of reminds me of Marion in the Well of the Souls anyway, but in that scene, she realizes there is no perfect, there is no winner in this game. Everybody is going to die. Whenever they say those three names, it also now reminds me of Con Air with Benson, Carls, and Popovich. Well, the good news is I found Benson, Carls, and Popovich. What's the bad news? Bad news is this dead fella right here happens to be Benson. This Aryan fella with a bullet hole in his forehead is, is Carl's, and, and this honker he's dragging in is Popovich. I don't know how to tell you this, Cyrus, but we are three white guys short. Or as they say in Ebonics, we be fucked. I love Conair. I don't care what anyone says. That's a great movie. Now, going back to your point on Amber, where, where did they shoot this footage? When, when, that's great that it still exists, but the camera is literally what on the outside of the helicopter is it mounted on the outside? It's the most ridiculous footage I've seen in a movie in a long time. I'm watching it going, who, where's the camera? Is it mounted outside? This is ridiculous. And why is it still around? Why is it still exactly. Exist? Exactly. I, I think that that station really needs to up its whole sort of e-security, doesn't it? I mean, she just basically wanders into a room and goes, oh, hang on, where's that foot? Oh, here it is. If only I could find the foot, the real footage of ben, ben Richards, you know, the, 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 the real footage that they faked to, to sort of frame him up. Oh, here it is. And then, you know, the way they just hack it, they, it's, it's, it's very 80s, you know, the way they just hack that. They're so easily able to hack into everything. That whole weird resistance they've got headed up by Mick Fleetwood, <laughs> which I just, you know, it's just sort of totally bizarre. And that they have a headquarters inside of the zone where they're playing the game. And they keep the footage at the TV station where apparently not only is this, you would think this would be a huge event. I mean, maybe they have so many of them. It's just, it's like Tuesday for them. I don't know. But this seems like it would at least be in a safe or maybe hidden somewhere. Not like, hey, this is the Richards incident or whatever it was written on the thing. It was just so easy to find and, and ridiculous to an extreme. That's the one part of them, and, and that and the Christmas tree guy. Um, <laughs> were the, were the two, my two big what moments of the movie. I think, I think it does fall away a little bit towards the end where, as you say, that they're suddenly in the resistance headquarters and all of a sudden there's all these resistance soldiers who sort of look like extras from commando and they're like, let's go, let's go and storm the TV station. Yeah, let's go and do it. And three minutes later, they're in the TV station having a shootout with the security guards. Very strange. Again, it reminds me of They Live with the whole idea of the satellite transmission. It reminds me of They Live. It reminds me of Johnny Mnemonic for <laughs> for this reason, too. But here we are. We're going to have this satellite transmission at the end, and it's going to expose the truth to the world. Though, without a better narrative, I don't know if people would necessarily get it unless they said, like, this is the original footage. But somebody – and I think it was Dweezil Zappa, somebody had time to edit together a really cool intro for this footage when it gets shown to the rest of the world. So kudos to Dweezil for knowing how to use, uh, probably at that point it would have been like a video toaster to do all the cool effects on uh, you know, the Killian Who Do You Love uh, video there. And we can tell that Arnie's bounced back from his time in the stadium. I think, if I'm not wrong, in that really cool intro, he's back with the Stoogie. You know, the, the large cigar that he basically then chomps all the way into the shootout scene. I'll do this scene, but I must have to get off. <laughs> that's exactly. that's those early, that sort of just, just at that cusp when, you know, analog is switching over to digital and you're, and, and you're able to do 
all those things. I mean, that's another um, – I, mean, I mentioned this film earlier. It's a film that also reminds me a lot of uh, The Running Man. I was in Rome 2072, The New Gladiators, the Fulci film, about these two competing uh, TV networks who are sort of trying to one-up each other in terms of having the most violent sort of reality games. And one of the, one of the networks comes up with this, you know, with, with, this, with this game called The New Gladiators where they tool around with swords on dirt bikes in a stadium killing each other. But that also has a satellite. And the entire the entire trajectory of the entire film and the entire world history has changed when someone's just able to sort of like press a button and key into the satellite link up and change what's being shown. Wouldn't you say that it, it's almost prophetic how accurate it is looking back in terms of I remember seeing this as a kid going, wow, none of this would ever happen. And now theoretically, I mean, it's the same thing as the Internet. You cut somebody's Internet off, the transmission could die that way. But everything can be shown across the world now through one location. And that just amazes me that this kind of stuff is came to fruition. Has come to fruition and is, is often used for the forces of evil rather than the forces of good. The whole fake news aspect is obviously very topical now, and they do that. The other thing, of course, uh, which we've commented on, is the way that they're able to the the powers that be can um, doctor the footage of um, Ben Richards in the helicopter refusing to open fire on protesters, and they, they they come up with this whole clip of him opening fire on the protesters and killing heaps of them. I was reading somewhere that we're actually very close to being able to to not just we're actually being able, very close to being able to take footage of people talking, you know, people giving speeches, and we're actually able to doctor it in such a way as that we can actually change what they're saying and the way that they're saying it. And it looks, you know, you've got to be really clever to be able to spot the difference. The video footage of him with the uh, massacre in Bakersfield reminded me, and I hate to get too political, but let's go ahead. It reminded me a lot of the uh, Planned Parenthood footage that was being used to say like how horrible Planned Parenthood is. And it was such a hack job of editing where it's just like, wow, if you pay attention to this at all, you can see where these things are coming from. But yeah, people just ate it up with a spoon. And it's so much easier to believe the lie if that's the first thing that you hear. So I'm wondering how many people are just like, oh, well, this is just, uh, this is fake news when they saw the actual footage from the massacre and they then ben richards is exonerated if they're just like no 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 this is all fake i i really think it's easy to discount it as as political i i do not believe necessarily it's political anymore i think news often is entertainment and a, a lot of what you see in running running man is stuff that unfortunately it's just, it was ludicrous then now it's an everyday occurrence where Things are doctored or modified or edited to present the story that they want to tell. And I don't mean just politics. I mean, any any story can be taken. The footage can be cut. You know, the five minutes that really gives a context can be left out. And you're left with what's remaining. And people will jump on that. They love to jump on those particular moments. And those moments go viral. And it becomes – it can be a protest. It can lead to a lot of things. That to me is is not political. It's the nat- the nature of entertainment anymore because news has become it has evolved into entertainment. There's a video circulating now, whether it's accurate or not, uh, I don't know. But I would encourage everybody in this room, and frankly, everybody across the country, to take a look at it. Finally, we get to see Captain Freedom Jesse Ventura fighting. 
Ben Richards, but it is all this manipulated footage. It's done via computers. You know, computers can do anything. Now, really, we can do this kind of... Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Stuff that was very futuristic then. You know, we can now, you know, uh, take away people's, uh, we, we can take away Charlize Theron's uh, arm and replace it with a mechanical arm with without really thinking about it at all. So we can swap out. I mean, hell, we've seen young Arnold Schwarzenegger. We've seen other people wearing Arnold Schwarzenegger's face in one of those horrible Terminator sequels, you know? So actually in two of the Terminator sequels, because both in Terminator Salvation and in the, I can't remember which one Salvation was, the fourth one and the fifth one. There we go. Problem solved. Use fucking numbers. Anyway, We've seen that done twice. And here we have this thing in, you know, 1987 where it's just like, oh, wow, we could never do that for real. But yes, we can do it for real. And I always wonder who's that poor schlub that manages to get murdered on television because he's standing in as a body. Yes, yes, this. yes. I mean, yes. we'll never find that out. But... Probably that, probably that, probably that cleaner <laughs> that, uh, you know, that splashed water on That's Dawson's right. shoes. That, that clean of it splashed water on Dawson's shoes. Oh, and the worst part where I was, I actually sat in my chair and said, Jesus Christ, it's a documentary at one point, is when you hear, <laughs> I don't remember what, there's like two separate mentions where they're like, give me the president's agent and I want a court appointed theatrical agent. I'm like, Fantastic. Oh, these, these are really things now, I think. Oh my God. There's no way that our current president would be doing the stuff that he did on his television show without that. And it's so ironic that Arnold Schwarzenegger took over one of those television <laughs> really? shows. And then their whole open feud via Twitter was just ridiculous. If the world was a um, if the world was a eighty science fiction film, you see, in America you'd just be able to find the upload circuit to the satellite and just end the Trump presidency then. You'd just be able to ch- switch discs <laughs> And suddenly it would all just it would all you'd, you'd basically see see Trump as he really is, and it would all just end, and people would go, "Oh yeah!" And you'd have a quick shootout; it'd be over. You give everybody their solar eclipse glasses, and then you see <laughs> obey That's truth. Right. You see everything. That the guy that our pr- sitting president was having a fight with Arnold Schwarzenegger about ratings via Twitter. I'm telling you, it's a documentary. That's Killian. <laughs> it's a documentary. It's Killian. That's that's Trump. I love Killian more than I love our <laughs> I don't think we want to go here because I'm from Australia and I can tell you what we think about all of that. Oh, feel free. Well, when we're not absolutely terrified that he's going to start World War Three via Twitter, we just think, what what is happening? What is, you know, this, oh, look, on every single, every single conceivable level, I just think, you know, 
This is just bizarre. And I think Bannon leaving, I think that's bad because what's Bannon? I think Bannon's been let off the leash to basically support the president's agenda. We see it under our own microscope. I mean, we're, we're here. <laughs> so we don't really get the concept of what do other countries think? And I think Mike and, you know, we, we often keep pay attention to politics, but we don't really know what you guys think. And that's pretty much what I thought you'd think, unfortunately. Oh. As I say, we're 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 kind. Of, it's it's kind of it's kind of a joke until it's not a joke. It's kind right. of it's kind of a joke until someone says, "Oh, look, yeah, hey, we're ready to we're ready to uh, fire the nuclear missiles." And then all of a sudden, it's like, "Oh, hang on, this isn't a joke." All right, we're going to take a break and we're going to play a series of interviews. Now, the first one is with screenwriter Stephen E. D'Souza, and this is one of those tragedies. This is one of the few times in the history of the podcast where I almost cried during an interview. Now, it's not an Alan Barron interview. This is the interview with Stephen D'Souza. It was so good, and the guy, he stayed on the phone with me for like three hours, but at one point, an hour and a half into the conversation, something happened to his phone line, and it cut out and the entire first part of the interview is gone. There's just no data in the file of that recording. And that has prompted me then to now upgrade some stuff. You know, go ahead, support me on Patreon. I'd love to have more monies to be able to do better work and yada yada. But yeah, the whole fucking first half is gone. And it was fantastic. He talked to me about his Time Coming to Hollywood, which is just one of the most amazing stories I've ever heard. The guy went from zero to hero within like a week of getting uh, to town. One of these amazing stories. He talked about working on 48 Hours and his fights with Walter Hill. He talked about Commando and all of these things of you know first meeting Arnold Schwarzenegger, working on Commando, what Bill Paxton is doing in Commando, because there's this whole third act change that happened after the director saw Rambo and decided to amp up the violence of the end. And he started to talk about The Running Man, and I think I got about half of his story of working on The Running Man. So that is probably one of the biggest bummers ever. Now, I still have some good stuff. Uh, there's a little bit of it on the uh, Beverly Hills Cop episode, and you can also hear Harold Faltermeyer talk a little bit about The Running Man in that episode, so I recommend you check that out. Then about two weeks later, as I'm still trying to upgrade stuff, I talked to Kurt Fuller. Now, Kurt Fuller, luckily, I managed to catch just about everything he said, but he did start off his interview talking about working with, again, going back to uh, uh, the Beverly Hills Cop episode. One of his first things was working and being in a play with Stephen Berko. Oh, yeah, from Beverly Hills Cop? Maitland. Maitland. Right. Was working with Stephen Berko on one of his plays. And we talked to Berko about him being a writer and all this. So it was this great connection between these two episodes. And I missed that. So you get 90% of the Kurt Fuller interview. And again, a fantastic guy. The guys who you do get the full interviews for are also producer George Linder and producer Rob Cohen. So we're going to hear all four of those, though. God help me, the abridged version of the interview with Stephen E. D'Souza. We'll hear all of those right after these brief messages. 
All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take uh-huh. us to church. Uh, what can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. <laughs> uh, is there anyone's coattails you rode in on to popularity? I'm the guy that f***ing burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, <laughs> horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. Yeah. People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one <laughs> That is one star too many. Let me tell you. The worst f***ing piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. Ah. Uh, that was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. Uh, I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. Who is Carl Kolchak? He's a reporter. Now that is news, Vincenzo. News. And we are a news paper. We are supposed to print news, not suppress it. With the INS. What's an INS? Independent News Servicer, founded in 1904 by Enrico Peluzzi. Who seems to have a nose for the strange and unusual. Well, last year in Las Vegas, I uncovered a series of murders that turned out to have been committed by a vampire. And what is the Kolchak Tapes? It's a podcast. All about Carl Kolchak. What's a Kolchak? The Night Stalker. And where can you get it? On iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.kolchaktapes.com. As foolish a game as any that Gordy the Ghoul could make up. They're the movie podcasts where very serious people talk about very serious things, analyzing them like true professional critics in a very serious way. There are also podcasts where drunk or high youngins talk excitedly over each other about the latest pop culture stuff, dropping references and opinions like they were drunked up skunks. But what if you want both? What about if you want a movie review podcast and website that has a sense of humor, mad songs and weird guests, but also reviews movies with a passion and reverence not seen since Mrs. Penelope Thigh's public access movie Rama show just out of Duluth in 1987? Well, now you can. At no extra cost and with no unnecessary bowel misplacement, it's the After Movie Diner podcast. Available on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher and AfterMovieDiner.com. As sponsored by Titty Headlines, Movie Sanctuary and Facial Massage, please take exit 37 off I-98 and ask for Terrence. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, we have the writer of The Running Man, Mr. Stephen E. D'Souza. As I said earlier, this is an abridged interview. Uh, Later on in the interview, when I'm talking to him, after we talk about Die Hard, I mention uh, Sylvester Stallone. I don't really make it clear that we're talking about Judge Dredd, so I want to put that out there that we kind of jump into that, and he was one of the writers on that show. So let's go ahead and roll that interview. Gave me a really interesting idea, which we never got to write the script for him. Uh, would have been very difficult to pull off, which was that the movie should be a podcast no, in real time, which would create all kinds of problems of explaining, you know, exposition of explaining how Arnold got in trouble. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to say, it's, it's easy to say hard pull off. 
But he also had other ideas. He, he had an idea even beyond Cosmatos that the entire show was in an artificial environment. So, you know, like the, 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 the whole game show was a complete artificial world. And he said to me, he says, have, have you ever been on a British set, Stephen? You know, on, on an English set, you've got the tea lady comes around with a little card of tea and sweets. I love you. I love you. We're coming to love you, Stephen. Whenever the tea lady comes through, everything stops. The crew stops. The stalkers stop. Arnold stops. And they all stop and they have tea and crimpets and cake. And then bell rings and they start chasing each other again. But that was maybe a little too Monty Python-esque. You know, you know it was sort of like it, it, what was later in The Man Who Would Be King, where you remember the holy man comes through and everybody stops fighting. But it was a little too Python-esque in this context. So before you could say, what is the capital of Assyria, he was gone. It was a bridge too far. Uh, and then they brought in Andrew Davis. I did a draft for Andrew Davis. Uh, and Andy started the movie, and then one day um, Rob Cohen calls me up and says, listen, uh, you put your thinking cap on. Uh, I think we may be shutting down for a couple of days, and you know maybe some of the ideas that you're thinking about uh, could come in. Now you come over and look at the dailies today. Something's going on. Like, well, I just picked up my daughter like from like you know gymnastics class. You know, she's with me. That's, that's all right. You bring her. I go to the screening room, and there's a bunch of key people there. Um, Arnold's in the yellow outfit, like coming directly from the set. The director is not there. We start looking at dailies. And these are dailies of the ice hockey scene with Sub-Zero. Uh, so it's an action scene. And if you've ever seen dailies, when you do action scenes without dialogue, it's pretty, all you hear is just the you know sounds of the room, maybe the clue making noises, talking, and like very weak sound effects and explosions. You know, and it's kind of like monotonous, just the sound of projector. So it's like Susan Kane, the smoke is going, Susan Kane is the light beam, and there's smoke in the light beam going up uh, from Arnold's cigar. And then I hear a voice, Ew, that's so gross. Mister, can you put that out? I go, oh, God, it's my daughter. So Arnold puts it out. He's very chivalrous. He's even more chivalrous another 10 minutes later she falls asleep on him because it's just monotonous grinding in the dark room with projector. Anyway, what had happened, the reason that Rob called me in was while we were in development on the movie, one day, and he said, listen, I've got a great idea. At the end of the movie, when they break into the studio, right, to, like, you know, put the truth on the air, they don't realize that Killian is one step ahead of them. It's got, like, a huge amount of guys in there with guns and shit. They're fucked. They're cornered. And Arnold reaches in his pocket, and he takes out one of the hockey pucks, the exploding hockey pucks from his Sub-Zero, and he throws it like a hand grenade and blows up the guys who are going to ambush him. So Rob Cohen and I look at each other, both the same thought, but I'm not the producer. Rob, he says, Andy, that's going to make Arnold not the hero, but a complete shit heel. Because you're basically saying he pocketed this like an hour and 10 minutes ago in the movie, and it's let the entire supporting gas get whacked, and now he pulls it out of his ass to save his own ass. You know, that, that doesn't work. So the conversation was abandoned. Uh, had it not been, I would have figured out a way to make it work. You know what I mean? I do, or to get to that thing. So the whole thing was dropped. But now, having gone through, this is our fifth director, the movie has stopped and started twice. We're behind schedule already. Andy is, even starting out behind schedule, Andy is slipped behind in schedule. And now in the dailies, he has directed Arnold to do exactly that, to take a hockey puck off of the dead Sub-Zero's body. He provides the thing that he was said we're not doing. So... You know, whether that was the argument or whether being behind schedule or creative differences, however the deal was torn up, he was off the movie. So now the picture shut down for like a week. He was only, he only worked on the movie about a, about a week, a week, uh, uh, maybe seven days of filming, which would be like a week and a half. The picture shut down 
and Michael Mann came to the rescue. Michael Mann had worked with uh, Rob Cohen on Miami Vice. Rob is kind of a renaissance man. He's been a studio executive. He'd been a, uh, uh, a television director. He had directed uh, Miami Vice. And Michael Mann said, listen, I know you're in a bind. You should try Paul Michael Glazer. He's done some of our best, most seminal, some of the episodes that, that sort of created the image of Miami Vice in the first season were done by... Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Paul Michael Glazer's director. And he, you know, he's had a career in television as an actor, now a director. He can hit the ground running and basically make this movie on, on what's left, which is now a television schedule. Because, like, you know, you dare get the days back you lost, and there's already a release date for the movie. So that's how he came into the movie. Now, my biggest complaint about this movie to this day is, while we're putting the picture together, we had a special effects company come in and say, listen, we've got the greatest, latest thing in special effects. You no longer have to have your stars and your stuntmen risk life and limb. We have invented the synthespian. And they show us how they could take an actor's face and put it on an animated person. Now, it turns out that the demonstration, this is 1987, it was not very convincing. You know, it, it, you know, if you remember, even with Dr. Octopus Bill McGuire climbing up the clock tower, it was kind of not too convincing. The face swapping part worked. So they say, thank you very much. You guys have been just doing the regular special effects, the future city and making the, the, making the building for the network look bigger than it is and all that stuff. But after they leave, I said to Rob, I said, Rob, you know, I'm thinking that until the guy started moving, the face swapping thing really worked. What if we do that when Arnold is not moving? He says, what do you mean? Now, you have to know what I knew is that Rob Cohen was famous in Hollywood from the very first day he came to work fresh out of Harvard as a lowly story editor, story reader, uh, story editor at Universal Studios. And that's where, you know, they give you a script to read and they give you a one-page sheet with the, it says boxes. You know, it costs, you know, uh, rel- you know uh, relatability, entertainment value, budget, you know, and you, Recommend it or don't recommend it. So he'd be given the first script to read. He reads the script. He comes back two hours later with the form. He gives it to his supervisor. And the supervisor looks. He's checked all the boxes at the top. Highly recommend. The guy says, look, Rob, this is your first day. You don't quite get how this works. You don't, you know, uh, you can't be more judicious in your stuff. 90% of everything is shit. Believe me, the stuff that, like, filters down to, like, you know, our office here is the shit that, like, it isn't decided on by these, by the movers and shakers. Uh, you can't go around throwing pixie dust on everything right away. Go back and do this all over again. You'll thank me later. You won't look like an idiot. And he says, um, you know, I sort of know how to read. They, you know, I, I sort of took literature 101 in school. I stand by this thing. And I says, okay, fine. I watched the end of it. You know, nice knowing you. Uh, this is the way I, You want to start? I'm like, fine. 
I'll send this upstairs. So it was the state. So to this day, and at that time, because I'm working with this guy on a daily basis, he has the memo from his boss saying, you don't want to do this, and his report, frame, on frame. Remember what you guys did at Universal and Sting, where the end, where Newman and Redford kill each other, and the audience goes, holy fucking shit, and they're stunned. And then after Robert Shaw, like, runs out of the room because of its murder scene, they get up and they go, oh, they shot each other with blanks. We that. What if killing is so desperate that Arnold is, like, killing everybody? It's a three-hour broadcast. It's coming to an end. What if he does this face swap and kills some poor schmuck in Arnold's place, knowing that he can kill Arnold, like, you know, he's got 24 hours to kill Arnold, like, because the show's off the air. So Rob goes crazy. That's it. We're going to do that. That's what I write. That's what we do. And we take the movie. Now we're putting it together for a, uh, for a test screening. We go out in the direction of Palm Springs. You want to get out of town for a test screening, A, because you think there's more real people when you get out of L.A., and B, there's less likely someone from a rival studio or from one of the trade papers will stumble into it and talk about a disastrous test. As your, your uh, listeners may know, uh, when you do a motion picture, you have what you call ADR, automatic dialogue replacement, built into every actor's contract. We'll say X amount of days for ADR, where you come in and redo the audio or sound, you improve your own dialogue or change lines or fix things that went wrong with an airplane on overhead. Right now, a very popular clip on the Internet is um, uh, a scene uh, where uh, Wolverine is doing a fight scene, and it's very funny. Yeah, so right, so this is what we do. But you don't want to burn off your star for the test screening because you haven't locked the negative yet. So they say, listen, who's, we got, what do we do about these lines for Arnold? So normally when you do this, you have somebody, one of the editors does the voice and says, Harold, it's not your child. You know, it's like not usually really good, the ADR. So everybody says, Steve, Steve, you got to do your Arnold. And this time I'm famous for Silver Lake the Malibu for my Arnold impression. And I'm famous for punking studio executives making demands. They say, listen, you promised me I would have a trailer that was the biggest trailer. It is not the biggest trailer on the lot. I went with a tape, I went with a tape measure over to Clint Eastwood. He has a bigger trailer. Arnold, Arnold will fix it. God damn it, is that you again, D'Souza? So I actually did some of Arnold's lines uh, for the test screening. And then... Uh, a couple of weeks later, when the picture was being locked, the sound editors couldn't tell one from the other. I still have three lines in the movie that are made. Anyway, that's good here and there. Uh, we do the test screening, and as written, Gillian's desperate. The government's calling him on the phone, and the answer says, Arnold, he says, there's a phone for you, Gillian. Who is it? It's the attorney general, and he gets real nervous. Then we cut to Arnold and Maria. They're running. They just killed uh, the fireball. Suddenly, walls come down. Boom, boom, boom. And they turn around, and there's Jesse Ventura. You remember Jesse Ventura? They want to make him go back in action. Jesse Ventura immediately grabs Maria Conchita Alonso and breaks her neck like a chicken with an audible crack. The audience, this is, remember, this is not seven. This is 1987. This test audience, 600 people, their jaws hit the floor. They could not believe it. Arnold sees Maria is dead. He howls with anger. He leaps on Jesse Ventura and does a beat down on him like... The hammer beat down and drive. Beats the living shit out of him, pounds him into the ground. There's old ladies in this test screening saying, kill him, kill him, kill him, motherfucker. People are patting me on the back in the, in the screening room. I mean, in, the, in this test screening, right? And then, they, then at the last minute after beating the hell out of Jesse Ventura, Jesse Ventura makes a quick comeback and throws Arnold on spikes. Now the audience, like they lose their mind, they're screaming and moaning. 
They can't believe this, this, that, they're, that they're seeing this. I'm talking about the audience in, in the theater here. Then we cut to their control room, and they say, thank you all, good work, Frank, see you next week. And then he goes into the control room and says, well, it's a good thing that, that, that face-swapping discombobulator in 907 worked. And then you see on screen, they push a button, and Arnold's face comes off, beep, 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 line by line from some poor dead schmuck. So now we collect this card from the test screening, which, you know, everybody's, it's off the charts, like that, highly recommended, stuff like this. I go to the studio on Monday, and I see they're breaking down the 10th reel. I go, what's going on? He says, we're swapping two scenes. I go, what are you talking about? We're swapping the scene where they say, let's use the fake discombobulator and the fight. I go, are you shitting me? And a studio executive looked at the cards, and there were 12 cards out of 600 where people said, I don't understand how they fool the home audience. Because remember, it's test screening, so like the, the scene where Arnold's face is swapped is like uh, uh, the, the beta version. It's the black and white. There's one shot that says shot missing, which is shot missing, which is the dialogue we had recorded but not filmed the scene where he says, boy, Kelly, you were right. That really worked, right? So 12 idiots, not even idiots, it's understandable if you're not sophisticated, all of whom were older, by the way. They're all people like 50, 60. I'd come to the theater, came with grandchild. Um, they swapped these two scenes. And to me, that really hurt the movie because, you know, you watch that big fight now, it's like watching a replay of the Super Bowl. You know, any of the argument, if you have a Broadway show, you want the audience humming the last song as you walk out. So here, our last big number was not a last big number. So this bothers me to this day, but your, your listeners, if they have a Blu-ray, they can put those two scenes back in the proper order. By the way, if you look at the movie again, you can see that the dialogue I just said with the voiceover, a good thing that worked, is still like over a shot because we had the actor do it. We had, we had already released that actor. So the shot was shot missing is now a shot of a monitor with that guy's voice. Only now, it's, instead of being ex post facto, it's pre facto or whatever that, the equivalent of that is. Hmm. Do you happen to remember which lines are yours versus Arnold's? Uh, yes, I know one particular Sure, it's, it's when they're trying to get out of the uh, prison and they're trying to make the code work. And the one I know for sure is me says, we do it outside. <laughs> like when they're trying to like uh, break out of the prison. And I also think I say, uh, uh, what, uh, uh, what happened to Buzzsaw? I said, he had to split. I think that might be me, too. I'm not sure. Uh, two or three lines. But my, my kids still say, that's your dad, you know, when, 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 it's, when they see it again. I, I, would say, I, I would say almost all of the lines in the prison sequence when you don't see Arnold's face, when they escape from prison. And by the way, the exploding head thing is probably a billion times. There's so many things that have, like, you know, shown up elsewhere. But the main thing is, like, uh, now that, like, we're in this, like, uh, reality show that we're all in here, like we, you know, as I said, when he ran the picture at the Alamo Draft House, I said, uh, now we can leave the, we, now we can leave the theater, but we can't leave the movie. When it comes to Die Hard, what was your role on that? When did you kind of come into that one? There had been a script already written by a very good writer, Jeff Stewart, who later did The Fugitive, uh, based on the book. Well, let me back up here first. Uh, there's a good bar that you can make. If you go into a bar and you say to somebody, you know that part that Bruce Willis played in Die Hard 2 and in Die Hard for the Vengeance and, uh, Die, and uh, Die Hard 5, who was the first actor to play that part and in what picture? And they'll say Bruce Willis. You'll say, no, Frank Sinatra, and grab me and run out real fast and beat you up. Because, as you may know, and some of, but some of your, your uh, listeners may not know, the book that Die Hard is based on is called Nothing Lasts Forever. And it's a sequel to a book by the same author about the same character earlier in his life, or not really earlier, because the guy wrote the book 10 years later, called The Detective, which was made into a movie with Frank Sinatra. And if you see the movie Detective, you will see a detective who is estranged from his wife. They're having marital uh, difference, uh, uh, difficulties. 
So when they decided to make a movie out of this other book that the studio owned, Nothing Lasts Forever, they had to go to Sinatra first. They were legally obligated. Fortunately, he said, I'm too old and too rich to do this movie, which is good because otherwise the chase scenes would have been on rascal scooters. So once he said no, in order to sever any legal ties to Sinatra based on the old deal, they changed the name of the character from John Leyland to John McLean. And Jeb Stewart did an adaptation of the script, the script, and he made the character younger, not in his 60s, as he was in the book, and made the, the family member in the building his wife, not his estranged wife from the first book, not the daughter of Nothing Lasts Forever. When the book was written, and this was in the script that Jeb did, there was the uh, German terrorist gang, the Bader Bangoff gang, and a thinly disguised version of that were the villains in the book. And that was their thing. They had a real you know, political grudge against the company. When the book was written, it was the CB radio craze. So the guy he communicated with outside was a gypsy taxi driver with the CB radio. So Jeb did the important things. He made, made it the daughter, not the wife. Uh, he eliminated the gypsy cab driver and got right to a cop that later came in later. The gypsy cab driver at a certain point said, I'm over my head, and was able to get the cops involved. But if you know Jeb's work, he, you know, he's a, a great writer. I don't think he has a sense of humor. I have. I'm, it's not a, not a critique. It's just, just, it's just. When they decided the movie was going to go, and they sent they sent script out to Jeb wrote. It was it was sent out to Stallone and Schwarzenegger, Richard Gere, James Caan, Burt Reynolds. I may have skipped somebody. Everybody passed, and the reason they passed on it was not that it wasn't a good script. It was a great script. I'm you know I'm not saying there was, was there's things that I did that I think made it a different movie, but. This was this time of this kind of, uh, you know, roided up heroes. And I'm partially responsible with Commando, of Rambo and Schwarzenegger and Dolph Lundgren. And this character was, seemed like a pussy if you have, if you think that's the model. This, of course, is why the movie worked so well. It finally broke that pattern. But at the time the script got turned down by everybody, they were saying, gee, so the first act of the movie, he's trying to call for help. He seemed to be weak. And the point was, he's a normal guy for the first time, which is the great strength of the movie. So they turned to Bruce Willis, who already had a deal with 20th Century Fox. He was like doing the lighting. Bruce's decision down $5 million, which rocked Hollywood. Nobody ever got a cut of that fee at that point. In fact, Richard Dreyfus called his agent the next day and said, he gets $5 million, and I have an Oscar, and I don't get $5 million required. They brought me in and said, you know, we want you to add humor to this. And plot twists, because this is what I had established that you know, that I do and had a reputation for. So one of the things he said to me is, listen, uh, I was really burned out from the pink, blue, green pages on Moonlighting. Now it's going to still be Moonlighting while I do this movie. So he already said when he made this deal, he doesn't want to get the constant changes. So just when you go see him, tell him that the version that we put out today is it and it's locked, and he gives you some notes or wants you to change a line, just check that first so it doesn't, like, you know, effect, have a domino effect. I go to meet him for the first time, and I discover we grew up like 30 miles apart. He's like five years younger than me, same age as my younger brother. We hung out at the same places in Atlantic City, the boardwalk. Uh, we talked about playing Army under the boardwalk and doing this and that, and about our childhood in the same area. You know, like we all knew the same stuff. We get, got in a conversation about the kids' shows we watch, like Roy Rogers. He used to say, yippee ki kids, at the end of the show. This is where this comes from. And finally, he said, this stuff, he says, this stuff is so much fun, we should put it in the movie. And I go, well, it's funny you say that, 
because I was told that you had put your foot down and did not want any changes. And he says, oh, hell no. If, if we're talking about this kind of stuff, just go for it. I'm game. All right. So, therefore, I was sort of unleashed and just as they gave me a map of the building. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I was doing revision, so I follow the geography. And as long as I come, come, come up with stuff, as long as I can affect the physical production of the movie, I knew these guys trust me and let me do it. So the terrorist became a cover story, which gave us uh, an need to unpeel. Whereas before, like, you know, what? Um, it makes no sense at all that he didn't tell his guys what the plan was, but it works in the movie because you are rooting for him, for Hans. You don't want to get killed because you want to figure out what the fuck he's planning. And, and like he once said to me, he said, you know, I'm always with this pencil and throw, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, you know, you always busy, you know, so I don't know. You're like, you're, 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 you're deciding, you know, you know, whether you're going to go to Rio or like, you know, Hong Kong, I don't know, whatever. Um, and, uh, then another thing that made it a better movie was John McKeon came to me one day and said, listen, our actor is fucking fried doing this TV show in the daytime. And a lot of the, what we did was actual really night. We were filming in that real building, and you're looking out the window. A lot of it is actual real nighttime. Now, there's a, the main floor was a set. The main floor where the hostages are camping, and there's a waterfall and stuff. That was a set. But all the empty floors, the rest of the building was the real building. In fact, there's a famous story, the boardroom, where they killed Takagi. That later on became Ronald Reagan's office in retirement. And the first day they moved in, they stopped everything. They called the Secret Service because they found cartridges all over that had rolled into the corners of the gun. They thought maybe somebody was like... Somebody was testing an assassination attempt. And then he figured out it was left over from the production, that they had rolled in the corner a handful of, uh, of 9 millimeter uh, uh, brass, brass casings. He said, listen, if you can, John said, if you can write more scenes for the other characters, Bruce could maybe get a couple of nights sleep. And that's why Holly's part got bigger, and she began to confront hands. That's why the asshole reporter had more material to be a jerk back at the studio. and made it a richer movie. In fact, John gave me the comments and said, man, you ran, said, you ran with that note, man. You made it into a Fellini, Fellini movie. And uh, one of the things that was great being a writer who would work with this group of producers so many times is that you're trusted to be on the set because sometimes writers like, um, uh, you know, you can make, you know, you make a mistake. The actor says to the writer, you know, what do you think is up with my character? I go, oh, I think you're probably claustrophobic. It's on the director says, what the hell is he doing in that elevator scene? Did you go talk to the writer? You know, so I was on the set a lot, and one of the great scenes in the movie that everybody remembers, where he meets Hans, and Hans mind fucks him, out from me being on the set. I was on the set one day, and when the Ferdinand Fairfax tea lady came around, or when the snack wagon came around, uh, someone said to Alan Rickman, Alan, do you do an American accent like a lot of the uh, British actors do? And he said, I don't know if I do an American accent, they say, but I do like, you know, a California one. So everyone laughed, and I said, oh, my God, that's it. Because we had been, uh, Joel Silver in particular, we had been, uh, had been nagging at us that we couldn't have our characters, as Joel always put it, fall in hate. Because if they met, one of them would die. So I ran over and got Joel and pulled him over and said, Alan, do that again. So we did it again, and Joel laughed and said, what, so what? I said, so 
Bruce only knows to manage a voice on the walkie-talkie. If he can do that, he can meet him, and he can mind-fuck him. And he said, oh, that's great. This is Let's get McTiernan. So we bring McTiernan over. And McTiernan's a meticulous planner. He started out at AFI in the writing program, not in the directing program. So he, like, plans way ahead. And he right away, just like a face palm, his fingers are doing a face palm rubbing his hand, uh, you know. Uh, and he goes, no, no, no. He saw him kill Takagi. I said, did you shoot that yet? He turns to the first AD and says, when do we shoot that? He says, we shoot that tomorrow. And I said, is there a way to shoot that where he doesn't see he killed him? And John said, oh, I'm not doing the back of the head thing. That's like, you know, cheat, that's fake out. I said, no, no, you come on, you can do something better. You know, let's just think about it. So we all walk over to the set where Takagi's going to get killed. And John walks around with his hands up, you know, making a little window of the morning, uh, the, the camera aperture. And finally he says, okay, I'm not committing to this, but if we move this big conference table over here, 45 degrees, then Bruce can be spying from there, and he would not see half the room. All he would see was the wrist with the pistol and the other two guys. I said, great. He said, no, it's not great. you got to go right to the scene before I don't even – they were ready – there were grips ready to move the table. And they go, no, 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 don't move it yet. Wait a little – so they throw somebody out of the nearest office to the, to the sound stage and say, write the scene. And uh, they give me a typewriter. And on the front, first, I'm waiting for it to like, like automatically go to the next line. Oh, wait, it's carriage return. Uh, so um, I write the scene, actually rewrote a scene where he met another guy, like, a, you know, like just a random like that guy who got killed at that point. So that actor was happy he got to live. So I write the scene. I take it over to uh, everybody. And they say, okay, that's it. We're doing it. So that's how that got in the movie. Now, the next question is, I always get is how did Bruce know he was a terrorist? People are always coming up to me, like after a screening or like contact me on Twitter. They all the theory and they go, "Oh, his accent wasn't very good," or "No American hostage would take a bar of cigarette." He took the a lot of cigarette. That was to tell. Or the gun weighs different with bullets and without bullets. Now we're getting with time war because he hasn't switched the magazines yet. Here's the reason: when we shot the movie, it was happening so fast with the actor Castle eight, we had not figured out how they were going to get away with the crime. I already had the dialogue written. He says, well, if you steal $36, then, you know, they will look for you, but if you steal $36 million, so we had to play dead. That still didn't explain how they were going to get away. Nagging, two things are nagging us in the movie and getting closer to the end is can they meet, and what was the getaway plan? Anyway, as originally shot, when they get off the truck, then, 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 and by the way, nobody dies for 25 minutes. You can't get away with that today. They get off the truck. They all walk out towards us. And Jackie Birch, who discovered Alan Rickman on Broadway in I hope that works for your French speaking audience. for us. Decided that these guys should not look like all look like fashion models. This great looking group of guys get off of the truck. They walk towards us. They stop. And in the original script, Alan Rickman Han says in German. Gentlemen, synchronize your watches, and they all put their arms in the circle and click their watches, and they all had the same tag error watch. When Bruce kills the first guy, which is almost by accident, like that was totally inspired by uh, Torn Curtain when they showed which kind of showed how hard it is to like how hard it is to kill somebody, you know, with your bare hands. You remember that famous scene? They they killed they killed the uh, the Stasi guy. Uh, so uh, he kills the guy by accident. He searches him, and he looks at the IVs. He looks at the clothing. There's a laugh when he looks at the cigarettes. It says, these are very, very bad for you. And he looks around before he steals them, and it's a laugh because he's stealing the cigarettes. 
He looks at the watch, which is another laugh, right? Because the audience thought money might steal the Fine. Then, as he searched each guy, he noticed they all had the same watch. And the dialogue, written and shot, and in the first director's cut, before anybody else saw the movie, when he gets on the phone with Dwayne Johnson, he says, I think these guys are pros. Their IDs are good, the labels are cut out of their clothes, and they all have the same watch. Anyway, we're going on with the movie, and now it's like, literally like, there's like eight days filming left. And they say, we got to get a line of dialogue or something to explain how they were going to get away. And I said, okay, listen, I did something on a TV movie that only aired once that nobody saw. So how about if I rip myself off? It was a movie which now has a cult following. It was the first version of Will Eisner's The Spirit. It was a TV movie pilot, Sam Jones, who was Flash Gordon, was The Spirit. In that, I had the villain, Pigel, was so evil, she wasn't blowing up an office building, she was blowing up a children's hospital, and she was escaping in a fake ambulance. So they go, that's it, we'll do the fake ambulance thing. And so I write that scene, and they immediately film, like three days later, the scene where Argyle is in the basement, and he sees the uh, Theo, uh, the, one of the handful, the only, only terrorist who wasn't killed, go into the truck and bring the ambulance out, right? You know the scene, right? Now we have the first cut of the movie, which is shown for the director, a handful of executives, Bruce Willis, I'm there with my wife, not the wife from the earlier part of the story, the second wife, but we're approaching years now. Anyway, the movie plays, he gets on the airport, Argyle is just in the front wheel, uh, that is Christmas music. Uh, they arrive at the building, he goes inside, Holly, you know, Holly McLean, uh, and he sees Holly Gennaro, mm, all this stuff, you know, right, all that stuff, then we cut to the, the big day and pulls up. Dun, 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 dun. They pull in, they get out. He says, synchronize your watches. They all put their hands out, and everybody in the screening room goes, oh, shit. And John says, stop the film. Because there's no ambulance in the truck. Because we haven't thought of it yet. So now, he says, okay, you got it. Like, you got, he says to the editor, he says, you, you, the minute they get off the truck, you got to cut, like, as soon as, as soon as you can, take it like, as much as, you got to get them off the truck, but, like, you know, get the scissors in there. Now, we had to eliminate where he looks at every watch and goes, hmm. So there were like four or five examples of him noticing each watch. But we had to take them all out. The only one stays at the first one because that played as a joke, that he might steal the watch. So the reason, and, and, and you know, other people say, oh, he, he knows he's a bad guy because he was so smart, the bad guy, he said, my name's Clay, Billy Clay. I said, oh, that's how he could tell because the guy was so smart? That, shows, that, that makes me, that makes the audience even more nervous. That he picked the name off the wall. What it is, he saw the watch when he liked the cigarette for Hans. And in our first cut of it, there was a reverse angle where you saw his eyes look at the watch. But it is now we did not linger on that because it like made no sense. So now we have what some people think is a story hole. But people say, "I thought he's such a good cop, we can just tell." Well, I like a cop who's smart rather than a cop who's lucky. We like Sherlock Holmes because he figures things out, not because he guesses. But anyway, there is a mystery solved for. I have watched that movie so many times, and I don't know why I just accepted that he figures out Hans is the bad guy rather than having the whole watch thing. I, I don't know what it was, but I was just like, yeah. Hey, well, he's, he's just such a smart copy, just thinking about it, that cop instinct. But the, the ad intent is better for him to be smart. Now, when you look at the movie again, or some of your listeners, just when they get off the truck at the beginning of the movie, don't look at, don't look at, at the terrorists. Don't look at uh, Alan Rickman. Look past and you'll see there is no ambulance in the truck. 
I mean, some of these things came together like when Bruce is crawling, when Bruce is crawling through the air vents, you know, I was on the set a lot, uh, which is why some of these fortuitous things happened. But I was came along one night, it's like uh, uh, one o'clock in the morning, and um, they say you got to come right back to the set. And I go, why? And Joel sort of says, because these idiots built these air vents the same size as a real air vent. It takes him a month to crawl through it. He's, we need lines. So a lot of the lines he says as he's crawling through the air vent were literally made up on the set. I went back to the set and they gave him a walkie-talkie and I'm underneath the air vent giving him like, you know, 10, 11 lines and the best ones stayed in the movie. You know, like, come out to the coast, we'll have a good time it was something I gave it to him like literally 10 seconds before. Anyway, the, the line, now I know what a TV dinner feels like, and that was one of Bruce's ad libs. Because it, it took us so long, you know, when they filmed going down the thing, it's like it's a month to crawl through these things. And they, they made them like, you know, actual size of air vents. So you've worked with Van Damme, or uh, at scripted Van Damme, you scripted Arnold, of course, Eddie Murphy, um, Bruce Willis. What was your experience like working with uh, Sylvester Stallone? Well, Sly, I would, uh, the picture was shot in London, so my experience with Sly was only in development. And I had a I wrote for Sly that never got filmed. The plug was pulled one week before it was supposed to start. And I had a great, great time with him. This is at a time in his career when he was trying to change things up. And I had convinced him to do a Bruce Willis-like part. This is a movie that will never get made now. It's a famous, it, it, it's in a book called The Greatest Science Fiction Movie He's Never Made. It was called Isobar. And it was, a, it was like the Titanic in the future. It had love stories. It had, it was basically in the future because the ozone layer has been destroyed. International travel is on these bullet trains which go on pylons across like continents over the North Pole. And this is the inaugural trip of the greatest ever bullet train ever. And Sly is on the train and he's acting really mysterious and spy-like, you know, and writing things down and stooping and pooping and stuff around. Uh, and it turns out that he is just some like, you know, like, quality control guy from for the for the for the train line he's just an ordinary guy and he was totally on board with this my favorite slide story about this time is i'm in a meeting with him and he would periodically say maybe he's maybe he's a security guard and i said no sly you want to do what we did with die hard right like he so he, he I, I got him to stay all the way to the end he would have shot the movie it would have been this thing he was a regular guy i said you don't have to pump up that much right you know well i want my, my shirt gets torn in the end right yeah okay Anyway, I'm with him one day in a meeting, and the phone rings, and there's a knock on the door, and his assistant comes in, and he says, what is it? He says, I said, no, calls. we're in this meeting. And he says, it's the guy from um, uh, Caesar's Palace in Atlantic City. He goes, oh, not again. So he gets on the phone. He says, what? How much is it this time? Right. Okay. All right, I'll pay it, but this is the last time. Right. So he hangs up. He says, my mother, she goes to the casino. She like, and then she says, you know, my son will pay it. And so I go, uh, uh-huh, I, 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 I sort of know what that's like. So a minute later, uh, the, the knock on the door again. He says, what is it? He says, it's the, it's, it's the, the, it's the pit boss from Caesars. I said, she can't have, he says, she can't have lost more money that fast. He says, no, he wants Mr. D'Souza. It turned out that my mother is at the same table as Stallone's mother, gambling. They know each other. She says the same fucking thing. 
And they called my office. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This, and this was an intern who did not last the rest of the day. Says, oh, he's going to be with Sylvester Stallone. You know, because there's both to say, Mr. the answer is always... No matter what I'm doing, you say, Mr. D'Souza is writing, I will have him call you as soon as he takes a break, because everybody wants to hear him writing. And when he, they don't want to hear him eating lunch. They don't want to hear him with the doctor. Like, you know, like, they, they want to think I'm always, you know, so anyway, uh, so, so that was historical, and, and like, he, he remembers that story, too. Uh, but anyway, that, that was it, and then uh, Just Red was a rewrite that was done uh, right before the picture started, and uh, believe me, the script I wrote for that was far superior to the movie you saw. In this case, a director, I had the experience in a lot of movies, a lot of directors, in the course of 60-day shoot, they start making little notes in the margin, you know, and then at the end they go, gee, I had so many ideas, my script is so marked up, I should really get writing credit. And the studio should say, uh, you're not going to get writing credit, we didn't have a writing contract with you, we're not going to put your name on the suggestion, the, the legal suggestion, but they don't. They just roll over and they submit a credit with the director's name, and that has to be hashed out by the Writers Guild and a whole, like, you know, cockamamie thing. Anyway, this guy did so many interviews about how terrible the script was, and how he, he had to rewrite every word that when the movie tagged, he couldn't blame it on me. I still won so many creative battles in pre-production, but not enough. What they, uh, the first thing I did when they brought me on the movie, the script was written, I said, why is Perry White the bad guy? What? And the people in the, I knew this comic book. I tried to get this comic book made as a movie like 10 years before, before you could even buy it in America. Uh, I knew it intimately. And the people making the movie, the studio, nobody knew that Judge Griffin is the, is the Perry White, the, you know, the, the regular leading good guy. And I said, why are you doing this? And so I busted this guy in the, in the room and he's like squirming, you know. And he said, well, you know, if they did Mission Impossible, you know, they made, you know, and I said, yeah, but Mission Impossible was on TV for 10 years. So when they made the first Mission Impossible movie, it was mind-blowing that, that Phelps was the bad guy. You don't have that in history. So uh, they say, he's right, he's right, change it. Uh, so then like, what he would do is, and this is the company, Synergy was sort of going down the tubes financially, and they did not have anybody on set in London, no creative producers in London. They had the line producers, the budget, the people, but nobody who had creative chops to know what the movie's supposed to be. So the first thing this guy does, the director, he says, he calls back uh, any body and says, we can't change the guy's name. The signage is already done. It'll cost it. No, I have to do his action. It costs fifty thousand dollars if we change his name. Now, this is the complete lie because the name is on his chest with the little name tag and on his desk in his door. But that was so we could keep that stupid idea that, that Judge Griffin is the villain. And, if, and I saw the drawings for the costumes. I said, "You can't do these costumes. This is like Batman '66. It should be practical. It should be like body armor." He says, "Oh, the fans will revel. Expected to look exactly like that." 
you know, and I'm telling him to make the costumes they made for the Dread movie three years ago. And he would always argue, says, the fans, the fans, the fans, you know. Uh, the the guy, uh, but I, you know, I, 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 I won so many creative arguments that his revenge was on the set when Sly stops the drunk driver in a flying car. He looks at his wife and says, well, Mr. D'Souza, who may have friends in high places, but that he, he changed that script. I mean, that's his, his like payback for me. But uh, the other thing that happened on the movie, this, this is the best story ever on this movie, is Andy Vonnie calls me up and says, we got the first dailies. Come over and look at dailies. So I get on my bicycle. I'm a big bicycle guy. I ride over to the studio. I get in the screening room. And I had written a scene in the movie where the reporter who's going to blow the evil conspiracy story is at home with his wife. And this is supposed to be the future, but to make it relatable, it looks like your parents' house. He's wearing a sweater and she's knitting. And they've got, like, you know, regular furniture, no space furniture. And he says, he says, uh, he says, he says, oh, he's, oh uh, uh, Alice, uh, you're taking a big chance. He says, he says uh, the truth has to be told. And at least I know that there's one person who will be able to back me up, and that's Dredd. And then the door's kicked open. Armand Asani kicks the door open. So I write in the script, Armand Asani kicks the door open. You cut outside their apartment building, and you see flashes of light in the window, and the Venetian blinds bounce up and down from bullets. I go to the dailies, Andy Vonnie says, come see this, I look at the scene, and he kills these people like Bonnie and Clyde. Like slow motion. And I go, oh my God, what the, I said, Andy, this is a PG movie, you have toys and hamburger deals. You can't do, he says, oh, our director, he's so clever, run it again. I go, once is enough. And he runs it again, he says, did you see? Did you see? It's like, it's like, uh, uh, it's like Manhunter. Like, you know, like, did you see? Did you? And I go, what are you talking about? He says, there's no blood. There's dry squid. No blood. It's PG. And I said, that's the rule. I said, there's no such rule like that. Who told you that? He says, you know, I'm I write in the script, finally, when Jurgen Prochnow, who should not be Perry, Perry White, but he is, says, this has gone too far. Rico, it's gone too far. I should never have done this. I'm turning you in. And then on the Sunday says, robot, kill Jürgen Prock now. Rip his arms and legs off and, and save his head for last. I want to hear him scream. That's what I typed. That's what I wrote. But then I wrote, the robot walks off screen and we see shadows and hear horrible sound effects. This guy moves money around in the budget and has them make a life-size audio animatronic Jürgen now puppet operated by six puppeteers off camera, and he pulls the arms and legs and heads off of it and films it with arterial blood squirting. The movie is turned in the Motion Picture Association of America for a rating. It is rated X. Studio loses their minds. This is Disney. They turn in it again. They make cuts. They start cutting away, cutting away, cutting away. Of course, they throw away the entire, like, rip off the head stuff. They're stuck with the machine gunning of the, of the, of the senior citizens. Like, they can't, like, get rid of that. They're, like, icing and dicing like crazy. They turn in, it's rated X again. You're only supposed to get two bullets the apple. And he, uh, this is when Jacqueline is like is, is at the end of his reign. He cuts a break for his buddy, uh, Ed Pressman. They get it the third time. X for the third time. They finally cut it like everything they can. They finally get an R rating. Now they have a problem. Burger King sues Disney. They cannot have a Happy Meal for an R-rated movie. You can't even advertise an R-rated movie in the daytime for kids. There's a whole toy deal with Kenner or one of those companies. There's warehouses full of Judge Dredd toys ready to go on trucks. Canceled. The toy company sues Disney. All right, All right the toy company sues Disney. 
Now they're in a panic. How do we advertise this movie, which is an R-rated movie, which you wanted to be PG-13? And Sly says, well, let's appeal to the fan base, at least we have them. Except they don't exist in the United States. The comic book is unknown. But with that argument, with Andy Vanya, and, and again, you know, uh, uh, who is, uh, you know, Hungarian born and like comic books in American, you know, pop culture, like, you know, okay, maybe there is a fan base. I don't know. They buy into this, and the advertising campaign for, the, for, for this is the same as the Billy Zane Phantom. It has balloons, comic book balloons, you know, uh, pound evil. There's, if, you, if you go online and look for the ads, they are comics. If they have a side of a bus, and it's like comic panels, but not even in color, black and white like peanuts. And, and, and a cartoon slide is saying, stop evildoers with a, a balloon, dialogue balloon. They have this completely juvenile ad campaign for this incredibly hard R movie where these people are running around in leotards. Cut to, a few years later, the great, late, great Steve Cannell, famous TV guy, who I know from the days of Universal, we had offices nearby. He calls me up and says, Disney wants to make a feature film of Greatest American Hero. You did that movie uh, of a comedy superhero that nobody saw, but I know it. I know it, which is called Captain Invincible. Okay, one of my cult films. Was that a uh, Australian production? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a, it, it was a music from the Rocky Horror guys. Right, right. And, that, I, and Alan Arkin and, and Christopher Lee. That's a, such a great movie. Christopher Lee, the singing villain. He says, so I know you can do this. Come up with a take for Greatest American Hero, and we got a movie deal for Slam Dunk. It's, all, it's essentially greenlit. I come up with a take on it. He's crazy for it. We go over to Disney. I pitch it to Disney. This has happened to me a couple of times in the room. At the end of the pitch... The three executives applaud. I get in my car. I go home. It's the end of the day. It takes like an hour and a half to get from like the valley back to Pacific Palisades. Steve Camel calls me up on the phone and says, I don't know what the hell happened. They went right into a meeting with the top guys. And the guy said, Steve D'Souza, that asshole, he gave us an X-rated movie. We got sued by the hamburger people. We got sued by the toy people. He's never working on this lot. I go, it's not my fault. Actually, I subsequently worked for Disney, always forgiven, because management changes and the memory of the studio is the same as a goldfish. Well, I do want to know what you're working on right now. Well, what I'm working on right now is uh, I'm doing a 10-hour miniseries, uh, which we're going to film in Ireland. Um, it's supposed to film in the autumn, but I, I think it may creep the beginning of next year, which is called uh, The Gulliver Curse. And it's kind of uh, a um, Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code take on Gulliver's Travels, where I'm saying that the original manuscript of Gulliver's Travels, if you get a hold of it from like 1725, as a palimpsest under the ink is the secrets, uh, directions to go to a place on the earth where there's a wormhole that actually takes you to those places, that all of those lands described in the book really exist. And it will be perceived that it was pitched and bought as, it's like Game of Thrones meets Indiana Jones. But it's going to be perceived as a dark science fiction fantasy take on the book Gulliver's Travels, but it actually is the most authentic take on Gulliver's Travels that's ever been done. Because this dark, twisted, satirical novel, which is generally regarded, if you analyze it, as the first science fiction novel, Gulliver goes to 10 imaginary lands and Japan. In the Victorian era, they threw away 90% of the book and just kept the Lilliputians and the Brobdingnagians and turned it into a children's book. But the other places he goes are normal-sized people that are all weird and strange. To give you an example of how adulterated this book became, did you see Planet of the Apes? Oh, yeah. I've seen every The original one with Trotmaster? Yes. Okay. 
that entire scene where they put Charlton Aston on trial and say, what should we do with him? Let's castrate him in case he mates with our, with, with, with our human women. That is almost verbatim and Rod, and, uh, Rod Sterling limited from a scene in Gulliver's Travels when he is captured by the intelligent horses, which is a sequence you make. Some people remember that there's this intelligent, that was the biggest satire at the end. He goes to a, uh, to a land where the horses are intelligent and the humans are bestial. It's his satire of human, you know, uh, foibles. Uh, everybody remembers in the little fusion land, they tie him down. Aha, it's funny. Do you know why they tie him down in the book? It's been so long since I've read it, and I've probably read a children's version of it. Of course you did. And they tie him down in this, for the same classical reason that Ulysses uh, did with, uh, with the um, Cyclops. They tie him down so they can poke his eyes out with burning stakes. He's a dangerous giant. In the land of the giants, everybody sort of remembers that the princess of the giant thinks he's so cute and makes a pet of him and makes a little dollhouse for him. But in the book, the princess and her handmaidens take him into their boudoir and use him as a human dildo. I'm not making this up. So, uh, and there's all kinds of other great stuff. He goes, to a, he goes to a land where people live forever, but they decompose and they're alive, so it's like The Walking Dead. I mean, it's really, you know, strange, dark, twisted stuff. So we are going to embrace this stuff uh, in this thing. And it's something I've been trying to make this for, I've been trying to make this for like 18 years. I've had this set up multiple times, almost got made as a movie, almost got made as a TV series. This is the fourth time I set it up, but this time it's actually going to happen. What, uh, is it going to be Netflix or Amazon or? They, they've got it, they, they've, they've got it set all the way. I haven't made a United States deal yet, so I don't know if it's going to be on a network or Netflix or what here. But, uh, they've got it set up enough places around the world that they've got the money to make it. And they got an Irish tax shelter. And they're going to be filling probably with a lot of the great crews and people and sets that, that use Game of Thrones. A lot of the, that skill set and those locations and stuff. And also South Africa. They have to do some scenes of South Africa or Spain, depending on like, you know, you know, the dollar versus the pound versus the rand or whatever the deal is. Because there's, there's scenes that are tropical and there's scenes that are like, you know, more uh, temperate. Now, are you going to be, because I know that you've done a ton of producing work now and then you've even done a bunch of directing work. Are you, are you going to be doing that on this as well? I'll be, I'll be producing on this. Oh, that's great. That's fantastic. And it's, it's, sort of, it's actually based on, it has a little basis in truth. In reality, when Swift published it, uh, because it was so controversial, uh, and, uh, you know, some people thought it was true because it's a time when people were writing travel books and so few people had traveled. There were some famous scam artists that would like do lectures in London about they, how they were lost in the South Seas and had these adventures and none of it was true. Uh, but anyway, he had a, a friend of his uh, named uh, Simpson uh, published the book under his name and people were so enraged they had to leave town. So my premise is that this guy, Simpson's like great-grandson, has made his usual manuscript but doesn't realize you know, the, the significance of it until people come out of the woodwork and are after it. Well, I'm glad it's finally getting made. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, been, I've been looking for this for a lot. And I think, again, the same way that Running Man is kind of turns a mirror to, like, our society, um, and Swift did that, too, you know. And uh, the society, unfortunately, hasn't changed that much in Swift days. The You know, he's mocking politics and prejudice and uh, tribalism and all these things. And these things are, unfortunately, all back with a vengeance. So uh, who knows? Joe may even have something to say. Well, thank you so much. This has been an incredible, incredible discussion. Thank you. Uh, you're, you're welcome, Mike. Maybe this podcast has its own sequel. You have to cut it in two. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Next up, we have Mr. Kurt Fuller, who we've talked about many times on the show. He was in Miracle Mile and Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, as well as The Running Man. And as we said earlier, this is also slightly abridged. I didn't miss too much of this, but I just wanted to set it up a little bit. He's talking about his fallback career, in case acting doesn't work out, being a real estate agent. So I said, I don't want plan B to be being a waiter because it just, you know, it wasn't appealing to me. So I thought real estate was something that if acting didn't work out, I could still pursue the career because it's your own hours. Now, to be a successful realtor, you have to work about 60 hours a week. You really do. But they're your own hours. And so it allowed me to, you know, go to rehearsals and do theater. I didn't have an agent. It took me took me nine years really to get an agent. I mean, I was a real loser. I was a real you know, I was, I was heading for the reject pile, you know, and, uh, it was just that lucky break of getting that play. And this article actor named Ari Gross, who was one of my closest friends at the time. And he was helping Stephen Burkhoff sort of produce this play. And he convinced me to go audition for it. I was not going to, I wasn't, you know, it was just a series of lucky events. And I was tired all the time. I didn't sleep very much, uh, but I was young, gish, young gish at the time. And I couldn't do it now, but I could do it then. And I was full of, uh, full of ambition. I mean, I, I was, I will say I was a super ambitious, very competitive person. I think that's what kept me, that's what kept me going. That and the, just the love of doing it and the girls. Tell me, what do you remember about being on The Running Man? I was living in, in an apartment in Hollywood, and my neighbor was an actress who's in Running Man, who plays uh, Richard Dawson's sort of right-hand girl named Karen Hopkins. She's also wrote a couple, a couple good movies. But at the time, she was an actress. And the director, Paul Michael Glazer, they were looking for somebody, sort of a bad, somebody who just sort of looked, they hadn't even sort of devised what this character was, and it wasn't really that much of a character. Uh, but I went down and met him, and he looked at me, he goes, yeah, you look like a bad guy, all right, yeah, you'll you'll be good. <laughs> That's how I got the job. And, uh, you know, I was completely thrilled, completely thrilled. I mean, it was another just lucky I didn't, it wasn't certainly based on any, any talent or anything, but that, you know, I was tall, had dark circles under my eyes and I'm naturally a sarcastic person that must, must read, (laughs) must read because uh, he just thought, yeah, you know, I mean, I spent a lot of years playing, you know, funny assholes until I thought I better stop doing that or that's all I'm going to do. And then they're going to get tired of me being that and then I'll have nothing. So. But for a while, it was, you know, for a good while, it was, uh, 
it was a good way of, of getting jobs. And that was the first time I realized that, you know, I guess I wasn't that, you know, then I started putting makeup on under my eyes and I started doing all these things to make myself, you know, look more TV friendly and, you know, all the things you have to do. But at the time, it was, I think, the dark circles under my eyes that got me that part. You got to work a lot with Richard Dawson on that one. How was he to work with? I loved Richard Dawson. He was a very, very, you know, as a sidelight. I then went on years later to do the Paul Schrader movie called Autofocus, where I played Werner Klemper, who, of course, worked with Richard Dawson in the Hogan's Heroes, but that's a whole nother tangent. But Richard Dawson was really good, and he would start, I don't even know if I should say this, but he would start the day with a big glass of half orange juice and half vodka, and he'd just sip it all day. And he was fantastic. And he was very, uh, very friendly, very congenial, very, very good to work with. And I think, I think he was already, you know, doing all that other, I think he was already doing Family Feud. I think he was already big on Family Feud and uh, was just doing this as sort of a lark. And I don't think he loved it. I don't think he loved, I think he was sort of overacting at the time. Not overacting, but he was done with acting, basically. I think, uh, you know, I don't think he enjoyed the, the acting, but I, I, I thought he was a very nice fellow. I did want to ask you about the role in autofocus, because it's unusual that you get to play Werner Kemplar, Kemplar and then also you get to play Karl Rove. I mean, how many real-life people <laughs> have you played over your career? I did play Karl Rove. I played Werner Klemper. I have... Uh, I have a few that I wish I had gotten that I didn't get. I think that's it. I think those are the only, you know, those, those things are, are Carl Rove. Okay. You're talking about, um, that's my Bush. One of the most underrated half hour shows of all time, in my opinion, but was done in by nine 11, which is certainly the, the least of what happened to nine 11. I'm not, I'm not saying that was the, uh, that was the result of nine 11, but uh, no one knew who Carl Rove was. I went in to read for Carl Rove. I mean, they had to cast it in one day, and I'd never met anybody. You know, I mean, it was see what had happened was because of the election, we didn't you didn't know whether it was going to be Bush or Al Gore. So they had two they had they had two casts. They were they had a whole cast if it was Al Gore. And they were putting together their cast if it was Bush. And then Bush won, and they had to get a Carl Rove right away. That's the one part they didn't have. I had no idea who Carl Rove was. I looked him up. I couldn't even find a picture of him. I didn't know he was, he, I didn't know he was from the South. I didn't know a, one thing about him. So I just went in and made it up. I didn't make him Southern. I just, you know, I really didn't try and be Carl Rove because I didn't know who he was. Nobody knew who he was at the time. I mean, I had one day. What, what am I going to do? I'm just trying to learn the lines. I think I, I really think that the character works very well due, due to the writing. But if I had to do it over again, I would probably, you know, if I had a little more time, I would have made him a little, uh, a little more southern and a little more good old boy. But uh, you know, nobody knew nobody knew who he was anyway, so it really didn't matter. I mean, people watching didn't know who Carl Rove was either. We only learned as time went on. So nobody ever said, oh, you're not like Carl Rove, because they didn't know who he was. But Werner Klemperer was very little. I went in, he had passed away, 
I went into the Museum of Television and Radio and I found a couple interviews he had done and read uh, read what I could and noticed that uh, and watched a lot of the Hogan's Heroes uh, stuff. And when we uh, when we did the Werner the the Colonel Clint part of that movie. It was, it were the real scenes word for word. So Greg Kinnear and I would go into a trailer and watch the scenes over and over and over again, and then just go out and do it. And I realized, you know, Werner Klemperer is, uh, is his famous, famous composer, Otto Klemperer's son. And then Werner Klemperer in his later years would go and read along to, uh, classical music. And I realized that he really almost sung his lines. He almost talked musically. And once I figured it out that he was really, he was really talking tunefully. You know, he's up here and down there. You know, when I figured that out, that's when I was able to do Werner Klemperer. And that made it easier. But also, you know, it's not like uh, everybody knows what, you know, anybody who wants to see what the real Colonel Clink was like can watch it. So you, so it's, it's frightening to do actually, but it was really fun and it was hard and I, I enjoyed it. I think one of the first times I ever remember like really seeing you noticing you in a role was, um, in miracle mile. Yeah. Wow. Miracle mile, uh, which was made in miracle mile. There's a place in LA called miracle mile where, uh, the, L.A. County Museum is and the La Brea Tar Pits are and there's some uh, skyscrapers was made for $4 million and this movie had crowd scenes and special effects and basically the end of the world and lots and lots of action and it is um, and at the end of the movie the world ends. (laughs) Uh, It is not an uplifting film and it's a real, to, to this day, a cult movie and enjoying somewhat of a renaissance. I, 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 uh, I don't know. I don't know the reason for it, except that, you know, we live in scary times. It just came out on Blu-ray, by the way, and it looks beautiful. And I still get the fact as an old guy now, then I had like long hair and I was, uh, I was I was pretty young then at the time. People still recognize me from Miracle Mile. I think, by God, I haven't completely fallen apart yet. Because if they can look at me and know that I was that wild guy from Miracle Mile, then I haven't completely deteriorated. Because uh, that was a long time ago. That was uh, I became friends with Anthony Edwards from that. And Steve DeJarnett, the director, and uh, again, trying to sell a movie about, you know, the end of the world is hard. But that that was a that was a, a great achievement, I think. Uh, and and that part was I, you know, I didn't really know much about acting, film acting then. So, I, you know, in some ways I was sort of like a child actor and I didn't know what I was doing. So I just completely went for it. And. Because of the situation in the movie and the character and the amount of drugs the character had taken, I actually couldn't go over the top, even though I was doing it without any nuance or any kind of effort to, you know, mitigate the wildness of the character. It actually sort of it ended up working, but not through any anything I did well, just because I just 
I didn't know any better. And uh, Steve DeJarnett was encouraging me. He was pushing me and pushing me. But because it was a low-budget movie and I break a bottle of wine, they only had four breakaway bottles in the budget. So I only have four takes of, uh, of that one scene. I remember that to this day because uh, we were down to one bottle before I, I actually got it right. You always strike me as like cocaine personified in that film. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Uh, I mean, I, he, he guy was, I was so blasted. I, I, I had imagined that I would had just been snoring coke all day and drinking, you know, the poor girl, uh, you know, I'm supposed to be having sex with this passed out girl. And I just remember, I just kept apologizing to her because we had to keep doing it again and again. And I was so disgusting and playing this total pig. And uh, I think really she, uh, she deserves all the credit for laying there that long with uh, disgusting, sweaty me on top of her, on top of the cow fed building like 30th floor at the in the helipad it's just crazy and you know i i love morgan shepherd so much but i really wish that you had been oh. the heavy in uh elvira i gotta tell you morgan shepherd number one i mean who has a voice like morgan shepherd uh but yeah i have to say i could have been i could have been a good heavy but i think he was great but you know yes i would have loved to have done been the heavy in elvira which by the way it's also coming out in a special Blu-ray DVD thing. Uh, I can't believe that these movies, I, I don't know where, I, I guess they make money off them. I guess people buy them, you know, these cult movies. So, yeah, that's also coming out. And Wayne's World just had its 25th is coming out in Blu-ray or something. Yeah, I know. I think it's even playing theaters now. Yes, I should be getting some checks. Where's my check? That was the one where I really realized just how funny you are. I could not get over it because I had been used to you playing, as you were saying before, that kind of slimy asshole guy. But yeah, you were just yeah, I know. hysterical in Wayne's World. Oh, well, thank you. That was, uh, I mean, that was just, uh, that was Wayne's World. I, I went to some event and I said that Wayne's World was one of those few movies that sort of, defined an era and it defined sort of the eighties and it was just everybody for those three months working at the top of their game with material that somehow worked. And it was a, believe me, it was like a messy souffle, but when it came out of the oven, it was, it was delicious, but there were a lot of uh, eggshells and, and uh, a lot of stuff on the floor. Yeah, it felt like that could have gone wrong very easily. And oh, it, is... it could have gone very, very wrong. Very wrong. But it did not. Most, very, most really funny movies, there's not a lot of laughing going on on the set. It's pretty serious. But uh, in Wayne's World, it was, it was sort of like that. It was sort of like that. It's, you know, it was, it, those, those people are seriously funny. That was just another very lucky, I don't know. I don't know how, I don't even know how I have a career. I really don't. It's all just, I, I mean, I just feel like sometimes you, you know, I don't know what grading your podcast is, but you just sort of, as an actor, you got to step in shit every couple of years. And I, and I have been lucky enough to do that. I don't know if this fits in the shit pile or the non-shit pile, but I have to say <laughs> when I said on Facebook that I was going to be interviewing you today, 
I can't tell you how many people were just piling piling on and quoting from No Holds Barred of all films. Oh, uh, <laughs> oh boy! Just I, I, so I, and so many I, questions. I couldn't I believe how many questions there I know. were. What is the deal? What is the deal? I mean, this this movie is so bad it's good. Okay, it's so bad it's good, and. That was really my first big job. And I believe, you know, it actually did. It came out the same weekend as Indiana Jones and one of the Indiana Jones movies. So, but it, it actually did pretty well, but not compared to Indiana Jones. So it was sort of under the radar, but a lot of kids who are now adults, they loved that movie when they were kids. And there's a lot of love for that movie. It blows my mind, but that, that, no, that was not stepping in shit. No, that was, uh, that's one, you know, there's some things you can't undo. And that is one of the things I can't undo. Uh, and, but you know, I, I'd love to say great things about it or great things about working on it. Uh, Hulk Hogan was, I mean, or Terry, he was a very nice guy at the time. It was, uh, you know, he, uh, Vince McMahon, <laughs> it's what you see on TV is exactly what he's like. I thought, I said, well, I said to him, what do you think? How do you, how do you think the first weekend's going to go? And that was a, this was a, at a time when if you did like, you know, $10 million, that was a big opening weekend. $50 million, $50 million. I said, oh, no, really, what do you think we're going to do? $50 million. I'm telling you. And, uh, <laughs> just, that was just the way he was. He just is a salesman. And uh, very, very, you know, positive. You know, I never, I didn't really uh, socialize with any of those guys. It was me and David Pamer, Oscar nominee David Pamer, played my underling in that. And he and I have became friends and we're still friends from that movie. So I've got that. And I also have uh, have memories of, uh, of, of working with uh, Tom Tiny Lister Jr., who is also a great guy. But there were some big guys on that movie, man. Whew. They brought in some wrestlers. There was one guy they had to get like a trailer for him because he was so huge. He was French. He couldn't fit through the door of a normal trailer. He had to sit in like a wagon. I mean, it was crazy. I've never seen guys like this. They're enormous. And I can't believe that's the second time you were in a movie with Jesse Ventura. Yes, that's right. That's right. I've worked with uh, I, I've worked with Jesse Ventura twice. That's crazy. I forgot he was in that. Uh, and you, oh God, oh never mind. I'm going to forget his name. But there was another famous person in that movie. He was the guy in the cage. Oh boy, I'll have to. I'll, I may have to uh, email you that name. The name of this guy. You it'll blow it'll blow your mind when you find out who it is. The one thing, so you said you got to keep your memories and, and keep your friendship with David Pamer. Did you get to keep the bust of your head? I did keep the bust of my head, but it was, uh, oh, absolutely. Are you kidding me? But it was uh, it was made out of plaster of Paris, so it broke. You know, they sent it to me, but they didn't put any typical of the World Wrestling Federation at the time. They didn't put any stuffing around it. They just put it in a box and sent it to me, and it arrived broken. I know. Oh, I would love to have that. Oh, I I loved that. Yeah, I rewatched that one again last night, and I was just like, "Wow!" Oh yeah. Oh I, man, 
I, I do remember going to the director and I said, you know, I'm being awfully loud here. Like I had this one line when this woman, I'm in the, I'm in the boardroom and the, there's a, uh, uh, one of somebody who works for me asks me a question and I go, uh, miss so-and-so take a leak. Uh, and he, he, which, and I want to just go, yeah, yeah. Okay. Thanks. Take a leak. And the director goes, Oh no, it's take a leak. I said, really, really? Like take a leak. He goes, Kurt, you're acting with a six foot eight guy wearing red spandex and a bandana. Okay. Don't worry. You're not going to be too big. Uh, I said, okay. So I did miss so-and-so, whatever name was, take a leak. And when I see, when I see that now, it still bothers me. It still bothers me. I never wanted to do it that way. But what are you going to do? I'm just a, I'm just a paid, I'm just a paid monkey. Though it wasn't necessarily the largest role that you've been in, I think one of the most memorable ones for me as well was your turn in uh, Scary Movie. Uh, that was one of the best experiences I've ever had. Uh, it, it really was. I love, I loved making it. I loved that they let me be very dry. I loved that they let me make up most of my lines. And, uh, you know, we would do one with a script and then one would just improvise. And Ken and Wayne's, uh, they were all, it was Anna Ferris's first job ever. It was just a delightful, experience and Karen Rains, I don't know how I can explain this, but there is a gift to putting the camera in a funny place. And he knows how to put the camera in a funny place. You know, if you get somebody who doesn't know how to direct comedy, it, it can be a completely different experience if they don't put the camera in the funny place. And I couldn't tell you where the, what the funny place is, but he knew. And that is a movie where the camera's always in the right place to get the funniest, the most comedy out of everything. It, it really is. And uh, I, I just thought that he was really at the top of his game at that movie. In, in that movie. And uh, I still, I still think it's funny. I wish they'd only made one because I just, I just, I just think it's funny. They should never have made Wayne's World two. They probably really shouldn't have made Ghostbusters 2. Uh, and I don't think they should have made Scary Movie 2 through 9. Because the first ones of all those were just perfect. The cutaway to you when you show, show her some pictures. Oh, my God. Oh, people still come up to me. That's actually, that is so old, but it's still on my reel. <laughs> because I think it's so funny. And I just remember, I didn't know I was going to do that. He... Keenan uh, came up to me with this, like two, three of the three Speedos, one more disgusting than the next. And, you know, it's not like he said to me two months ago, you're going to have to wear a Speedo, so you might want to work out, you know, or you might not want to have that ridiculous farmer golfer's tan you have. He said, okay, put these on, and uh, here's a photographer, go take some pictures. I said, what? He said, put these on. And, and then I said, well, what kind of pictures? He goes, you know, posies. I said, where? He goes, just pick somebody's front lawn. So you went to the front lawn of somebody's house. If they looked out their window, they must have thought they were on another planet. And I'm, I was doing all these, you know, weird, you know, masculine poses, feminine poses, bizarre poses. I mean, everything I could come up with. 
it's a scene I'm very proud of. Actually, it's, I still, I still, it still makes me laugh. It still makes me laugh. Well, that's how that scene came to be. I mean, it was complete shock. You know, if an actress has a nude scene, okay, it's in the contract, it's negotiated. Me, I'm shown three ridiculous, basically, thongs and uh, told to stand on somebody's front yard. And I'm given five minutes notice, warning. I mean, really, I could have done some push-ups or something. I had no time. Yeah. Uh, well, where's my agent? I don't Maybe I didn't even have an agent then. I don't know. You know, you're talking about how you felt like stuff was kind of rough when you were starting off as an actor, just kind of like not really knowing what you're doing. Where do you think that really kind of came together for you? What I didn't realize when I came to Hollywood was it's such a business. You know, you go, when I was, you know, doing theater, you'd go in with other theater people, you'd go into a theater, you'd get on a stage and you'd act and there'd be, you know, theater people there watching you. Well, in, in Hollywood, you go to an office building and you go into an office and there's people in suits sitting there watching you. And it's not a theatrical experience at all. It's almost a weird kind of job interview. It made me so uncomfortable. It made me, it, I didn't feel creative. I, I didn't, I just felt like I, I, I must have had an authority complex. I thought I was just no good, you know, that everybody was better than me. And, and they were, actually. Uh, but once I started doing theater and started doing theater around town with other people who were working actors, and I started getting, really, this is really sad. It didn't come from within. I started getting reviews. I thought, well, geez. They think I'm good, and they see all these other actors who are working actors and who I think are good, and they're giving them good reviews, and they're also saying I'm good. I must be good enough. It was, I would love to say that I had some kind of introspective, enlightened, you know, moment of inspiration, but I, I really, you know, I really, I don't believe anything about myself unless somebody else tells me, you know. And, and really, I just sort of figured, I just sort of, you know, staggered my way through. And I had a good look that allowed me to get jobs when I wasn't the best. And then I sort of became part of the club. And once I became part of the club, I became more confident. But it took a lot of time. I mean, it really did. I still am learning so much about acting all the time. And I, I, I'm still in awe of, of certain people who have the gift that they can do things I'll never be able to do. But uh, you know, I've accepted that I have what I have to offer and, uh, it's, 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 it, and the right thing, it's really good. You know, I always, I guess we all wish we were better at what we do. <laughs> you know, I, unfortunately I'm, I'm, I'm in a business and you probably are too, where you're, you know, people are judging you all the time and writing whether you're good or bad, which, uh, I don't, I don't recommend anybody. <laughs> I really don't. I mean, you can get your job performance every six months. Okay. I've had just a great career and a great life, and uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything now. But when I started out, uh, you know, I, I really was one of those people who I had to have a huge capacity for pain and failure to to make it. But, but apparently, I did. So that's the way it goes. I'm not believe me. I'm not complaining. Well, I've been kind of peppering you with with titles because you've just been in so many great things over the years. <laughs> I'm curious. Well, either from a performance standpoint or just from the time that you had during the making of stuff, what have been some of your favorite things that you've done over the years? 
Uh, I have two that immediately spring to mind. One early, very early, and one more recent. Uh, the one was the first real series I did called Capital News that was created by David Milch of Deadwood and NYPD Blue and, uh, you know, like a complete genius. It was about uh, the Washington Post, basically. And I played the gossip columnist of the Washington Post and Lloyd Bridges played the Ben Bradley of the Washington Post. But unfortunately, you know, at the time, you know, reporters were not sexy. So it, it, I think it got canceled after four episodes, but I loved doing it. I really loved doing it. And I loved working with David Milch. I mean, I'd never encountered, I mean, it was early on and I had never encountered somebody who, I mean, he's a brilliant, brilliant, crazy, but brilliant guy. And I just soaked it up. I just was mesmerized by him. I worshiped him. I was afraid of him uh, because he was just an astonishing talent. Um, and I, I loved every minute of that. And then in terms of having the most fun, uh, I did four seasons of the show psych on USA that, and I can tease, but not confirm, but tease that, uh, there's a possibility that there might be a movie coming, uh, on USA, but it's certainly Certainly not a sure thing, but I hear rumblings, and that's all I'm allowed to say. I always loved that your name was Woody Strode. I know. Isn't that great? And for those who don't know, Woody Strode was uh, the black in Spartacus. Isn't that right? Yeah. Um, the actor. And James Roday is nothing if not a fanatic for uh, names and, and movies and references. It was actually, my real name was Woodrow Strode, which was Woody Strode's real name. People are all my friends to this day. And of course, it wasn't that long ago, but it was the most fun. Number one, I love Vancouver in the springtime. I don't recommend going there in the winter unless you ski or in the fall, unless you like rain 24-7. But the cast, the crew, everybody is just a group of delightful people uh, making some pretty funny stuff. And uh, it was really bliss. It spoiled me. I've never had an experience like that since. Because you were on Supernatural for a while as well. Was that all Vancouver I was too? on Supernatural, which I, which I, I enjoyed very much. Uh, not to the extent I was on Psych. But Supernatural, those were some hard sh- Those Those guys are amazing. But that's a real grind. There's a lot. I mean, those are very long... Uh, and, and some of the stuff is really intense. Uh, it, it, the only, the great thing is that though they are great guys, they get along great and they play ridiculous jokes on each other all day. Uh, or I think they, that everybody would go insane because material is so intense, but, uh, they're always, they're always finding ways to break the tension. I enjoyed that, but I wasn't really part of that family. I was more part of the psych family. Right, right. Well, yeah, you had, what, four years on Psych, right? Yeah. Four or five. And I, yeah, something like that. And I did two years on uh, Supernatural, and they decided for the 100th episode they were going to kill me, little knowing that they were going to go 200 episodes. So I missed out on about 100 episodes. But that's okay. I'm, 
who's counting? <laughs> well, and you got to work with um, Morgan Shepard's uh, son as well. Uh, absolutely, which is crazy. And we talked about that, and we talked about you know what a small, small world it was. That uh, I work with both the father and the son. That's right. Can you tell me about some of the things that you have coming out? Because I know you have uh, at least four things that are uh, still listed as post-production. And one of them, I just saw a poster for the other day of uh, Office Uprising. Oh, you saw a poster for that? I'm pretty sure I did. Wow. Because I was thinking to myself, that's funny because there's the Belko experiment, which seems like the serious version. And then Office Uprising looked like the comedy version. I did a pilot this year, actually for country music television. Uh, that's called His Wives and Daughters. It's a comedy, sort of a soapy comedy that they want to run after Nashville. They're looking for a companion for Nashville on uh, country music television. And it's very funny, and I, I bet it gets picked up. Right now it's called His Wives and Daughters, and I would look for it because it's, it's good. I have another movie that's at SW, that's South by Southwest right now, getting very good reviews called The Archer. I didn't take a credit for that, and I don't know. I don't remember why. I'm a bad guy in it. I don't know why. I I don't know why, but I am in definitely in it. And uh, but the movie itself is very good. Office Uprising. It. I just want to say it had better be good. It had better be good because there was plenty of funny stuff. The direct a lot of stunts, and uh, it's it's really. <laughs> It's really a, a comment on corporate world and uh, uh, bureaucracy and power and uh, the plight of of the not of the normal of the of the average man. It's a it's a company that makes military stuff and they're always trying to, to outdo themselves and uh, they make a drink that uh, the soldiers drink in the field and it turns them into super warriors. So as a celebration, they serve the drink to everybody, but it's a bad batch. And there's only five people who don't, for different reasons, weren't, didn't take the drink. And it, and so the, it, uh, in a very, I have to say very funny way, it's these four, four people's journey to get from the ground floor to the penthouse where the big bosses are behind a steel door while everyone is trying to kill them, all their coworkers who they used to know and love. And uh, there are some fights. I've never done stunts like that in my life. Uh, the director was, I think he did the stunts on Spider-Man. I mean, it was a, a fantastic, fun movie, and it had goddamn better well turn out because it, it, really, it really should. It really should be good, really good. And I will be very upset if it turns out badly. Well, I hope it's good. I did a movie, a little movie with Sophie Turner and uh, from uh, some little show called Game of Thrones. I don't know. And Dylan McDermott called Huntsville. That was a really, uh, a really well done uh, movie. I don't know what's happening. You know, some movies, you know, if you make a, you know, most movies are low budget. You know, most. Studio movies are far and few between, uh, and some of these these lower budget movies, it's really you know a miracle if they if they ever get released. They all end up on video, I suppose. Um, but I, I also really enjoyed uh, doing that. So you know, I'm about to go to Mexico to do a movie, and uh, you know, I keep working. I just keep working. What can I say? 
I still have kids in college. What do you, what do you, what do you want from me? I have to keep working. Yeah. You better keep working with the price of education. Gotta keep working, man. That's right. (laughs) So, uh, you know, I'm just grateful that it, that, uh, that I'm grateful that I still get to do it. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, I, I have rarely had a, you know, you, the one thing I will say to people who aren't in the business, if somebody, anybody has a bad day, if they're a star and they have a bad day, that bad day can follow them for the rest of their career and they can get reputations for being things that they are not, you know? Uh, and I have found most people in show business to be, uh, extremely pleasant and intelligent and professional. And I have worked with just about everybody. I mean, I worked with, with Woody Allen. I've worked with everybody for the most part, found them to be, you know, delightful and decent. And, uh, I'm not saying Woody Allen had one bad day, but I mean, most, I'm just saying I've worked with a lot of people, most of them great. So I have no complaints. It's a very rare actor that I talked to who's worked with both Woody Allen and Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> That's true. Oh, and I want to push, I, wa- I do want to say one more thing that I'm in that you're, I'm sure you will be interested in. TV land is doing the series Heather's. Yes, and I am uh, going to be the principal of the high school in Heather's, and I'm going to do most of them, I think. So uh, that was a very, uh, and it's very, uh, very cleverly and well done. And that uh, that was picked up, and I'm looking forward to doing that, too. So, yeah, that's right. I've worked with, uh, with Hulk Hogan, uh, Woody Allen, and Jesse Ventura. What more can you ask for? Next up, we have an interview with George Linder, one of the producers of The Running Man. I am curious, though, as far as how you decided to get into the uh, producing business. Basically, I've been an entrepreneur most of my life. Um, Various businesses that I founded and ran, probably the the one business that I'm most proud of. Um, I manufactured uh, wheelchairs. I totally uh, invented and changed the whole concept of a wheelchair because prior to that, I used to import and distribute lightweight racing bicycles. I developed the first titanium uh, bicycle frame. This goes back in, in the 1970s, late 70s, mid 70s. I met a guy in a wheelchair and I took lightweight bicycle technology and applied it to wheelchairs, which at that point had never been done before. So my company was the first one to introduce lightweight aluminum wheelchairs with cambered wheels. We pioneered wheelchair tennis. That didn't exist before. We developed a bunch of wheelchair sports, uh, track racing, and everything else. We then applied it to the um, everyday user that was, uh, you know, like um, elderly people could benefit from a lightweight wheelchair. The wheels were quick release like bicycles have, and all these features never existed before. So uh, we got the wheelchair down to 20 pounds when they used to weigh 60 pounds. They made these steel chrome-plated clunkers prior to doing what I did, and we got the weight down to six, uh, 20 pounds 
and removable wheels, much more compact, much more portable, and much easier to use regardless of age or athletic ability. So I did that for 10 years, did did very well. We exported all over the world, and I totally revolutionized the wheelchair, um, and the, today it's still the state of the art. I sold the business um, in about 1989, and in 1987, I produced The Running Man. I optioned a book called The Running Man by Richard Bachman. It was an obscure book. They only printed about 100,000 paperbacks. And um, I inquired, uh, you know, I looked up the publisher and everything. When got the a, a film rights to The Running Man, I, I thought the, uh, the concept, um, the premise of The Running Man, where there's a game show and contestants are running for their lives, I thought that premise was fantastic at the time. And I thought it, it could work. So I optioned the book for the film rights. I then had a couple other guys that I knew, and, and, and we, I, we basically co-wrote the screenplay based on the book. We then, uh, I then set up the film project uh, with a company called Taft Parish that had a distribution deal with um, TriStar. Uh, which was a division of Columbia Studios at the time. Um, anyway, Sony's in that space now. So, um, also, uh, Richard Bachman, who wrote The Running Man six months later, or maybe four months later, I found out through my attorney that Richard Bachman actually wrote the book uh, under a pseudonym. And it was the book was actually written by Stephen King at the time that I optioned it. And in fact, I argued with the agent in New York, and I said, you know, why do you want so much money for a, a book that's uh, obscure, only a hundred thousand, you know, paperback prints were in print, and uh, nobody ever heard of Richard Bachman, so he didn't really have an answer for me. They did not, they did not disclose that Richard Bachman was Stephen King. So when I found out that it was Stephen King, word got out. The studio started calling me in terms of, you know, getting the rights and making a film. So, you know, through my lawyers and agents, I positioned myself as the producer. Um, I was on the set every day. In fact, I'm the only one that survived uh, that production from the beginning to the very end. There were a lot of changeovers and personnel, directors and everything. You know, I was heavily involved in the production, and um, as far as I'm concerned, The Running Man was the precursor to what reality TV is today. Yeah, tell me about some of the changeover, because this, as far as I know, this had, what, four different directors? There were various directors. Um, the one that I liked the best was Andy Davis. Um, we ran into some overages in the beginning. He kind of became the fall guy, in my opinion. And we ultimately, I mean, we went through pre-production with Andy Davis. Um, we started off with George Cosmatos. He wanted to do The Running Man in a mall in uh, Canada and Vancouver. We just didn't feel that that setting was going to work. Um, there were also budgetary restraints, um, so we we didn't, you know, George Cosmatos, we had creative differences with, and, and he left, and he, he just came off the success of Rambo 2, which made a lot of money and did very well, but for our purposes, that wasn't going to work, so I suggested Andy Davis, the uh, studio said okay, 
And uh, so I went through pre-production with Andy Davis, who did uh, The Fugitive, Under Siege, he's done some big action films. You know, we were ready to go. So two weeks into the production, we were over budget and things were were going slow in the beginning in terms of, you know, getting the sets um, set up and everything. So the decision was made which I didn't necessarily agree with, but we wound up with Paul Michael Glazer as the director. But at that point, we had already gone through pre-production. We had a shooting schedule. We had everything cast. You know, he just basically stepped in and pointed the camera, and that was about it. Everything was already set up at that point. That's about it. What was your relationship like with the uh, the other producers on this one? Because um, I know it's, uh, uh, what, you and Rob Cohen and uh, Tim Zinneman and Keith Barish? I had, a, I had a great relationship with Tim Zinneman, great guy, very knowledgeable on the ins and outs and nuts and bolts of production and... Uh, you know, he's a lot of he's had a lot of experience. He's even directed to some extent. Um, Rob Cohen and uh, Keith Barish were the executive producers, so they they were really not around on the on the set very much. Um, we I probably had some slight creative differences with the executive producers. Um, you know, I wanted to stay more with the original book and the, you know, the way it was uh, written. They kind of went off in a different direction in the beginning, and we went through several uh, rewrites and drafts of the script, and ultimately wound up back to where we started. So, um, you know, there was a little, a few little conflicts, but it was okay. But Tim Zinneman, I work with hand in hand on the set every day. Good guy. Um, I think ultimately we got a pretty good film. What was the atmosphere like on set? The atmosphere was 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 fine. I mean, you know, was we did our jobs. We, <laughs> you know, um, everybody got along. Um, it was it was fun. It was uh, it was fun. Arnold was a was a good guy to have on the set. You know, he was he had a good sense of humor, kept things light. Arnold and I became very close friends. Did the film open many doors for you after it was out? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm still making movies. I made a movie, um, you know, about two years ago called, um, it was originally Nightcomer, now it's called um, Blood Cure, and it's available on Amazon. There's always opportunities, depending on the material and the cast, and, you know, a lot of factors go into it. And last but not least, we have one of the other producers of The Running Man who's done so many more things, and fortunately he was able to talk about quite a bit of those, Mr. Rob Cohen. You went to Harvard, and you kind of like, you came out swinging. I mean, you you were, uh, what, graduated magna cum laude? That's a little impressive. I worked hard, and I loved every minute of Harvard. I just really loved going to school there. It was very popular in those late 60s, early 70s to disparage the fact that you were at a school like Harvard, but uh, it didn't fit the proletariat aesthetic, but I was very thrilled to be there and uh, having had a a deep sense of history, it was just very exciting to walk those paths where so many other illustrious people had walked. 
you're dreaming your hopes and dreams of what kind of life you're going to lead beyond there. It was a very exciting time to be there. After you graduated, you moved out to Los Angeles, and from what I understand, you started to work for, is it pronounced Martin Giroux? Yeah, Martin Giroux, yeah. It seems like somewhat soon after that, you started working for Mike Metavoy as a reader. Can you tell me what that was like? Yeah, I mean, Mike was a very, you know, very rapid-rising agent, and I was working at an agency that Mike ran called IFA. You know, they needed a reader to cover the scripts that nobody wanted to read. It's nobody in Hollywood, nobody reads. I had a little cubby hole and would eat my bologna sandwiches and silt some hot insta-hot chocolate and work for, it was a hundred buck a week job. I would cover, read, and write reports on five scripts a day. And one of those scripts I read, I'd, I truly believed it was the great American screenplay and I trumpeted it and pushed it, screamed and finally met away said, I'm going to have breakfast with a studio executive, uh, Jennings Lang from Universal tomorrow. And you are so high on this script. I'm going to try to sell it to him on your coverage. And if, if I do sell it to him, I'm going to make you an agent. If I don't sell it to him, I'm going to fire you. So tell me again how good this script is. And I doubled down and said, this script is so good. If he doesn't buy it, he's an idiot. The right buyer will, will come. But this script is special. You know, all night I sweated my doubling down on my inchoate career as a reader. Next day, he came down to my cubby hole and he said, you must know something. And I said, why? It's because I sold it to him. And not only did I sell it to him, I sold it to him for the highest price for an original screenplay. I think anybody's ever gotten. It was all off your coverage. And um, that, that became the sting. And you were like, what, 22, 23 at the time? Yeah. So I became known as the kid who found the sting. And of course, in that town, anybody can read and actually recognize the, the movie is uh, considered valuable and you know, next thing I know, I was an executive of 20th Century Fox and uh, working on the first year of MASH with Alan Old, uh, that MASH. Which is still one of my favorite television shows. I know, it was great. And, you know, it was wonderful working with Alan and Wayne, you know, all all those guys and the producers of Larry Gelbart. But it was, it was a very fertile period. But I didn't want to be in television. I wanted to be in movies. So I decided to put Fox in the television movie business, even though I knew Bill Self, the president of Fox TV, was not in favor of that. So I basically cold called Barry Diller, who was at ABC, and said, I'm the new vice president of television movies at Fox. And could I come in and talk to him? And I wound up selling him one movie and he gave me a blind commitment for the second one and then I was emboldened so I did the same thing at CBS and you know pretty soon the business affairs guys from the network started calling Fox business affairs and they had no idea what these people were talking about that's when when I got the call from Bill Self who was very angry and embarrassed and uh, because these guys had called they just congratulated him on getting into the movie 
TV movie business with their network. So he didn't know anything about it. He said, well, we met your vice president, this guy, Rob Cohen. So he called me down and he was pissed. And, uh, and he goes, you know, what? I told you I didn't want to do this. And, da, 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 da. and I said, Bill, look at this. I've done the spreadsheets. I've done the numbers. I've talked to the syndication people. This is, we can make $400,000 on each one of these movies without any risk, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And I, he finally looked at me because I, I have two choices. I can either fire your ass and close the book on you, or I can make you vice president of television movies. Which one would you prefer? <laughs> so I became the vice president of television movies, and then I made all those TV movies that I'd sold. And at that point, Barry Diller called me and asked me if I wanted to meet Barry Gordy, the founder of Motown, as you know, and he's, he was looking to get into the movie business and he was looking for a, a young executive that could take him there. And Diller thought of me and I went and met Gordy. To this day, is like a father figure to me and very close and you know, in 1973, at the age of 23, I went to Motown as a vice president of Motown to run the movie division. And, you know, I made mahogany in the way Thank God It's Friday and, you know, a bunch of, bunch of movies with sort of black themes. And and, uh, and then I went on to direct. So but, uh, it was a pretty rapid rise. Now, you've worked a lot with John Badham. I'm curious, when and how did you meet him? Well, I had a young director to direct the Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars, whose name was Steven Spielberg. And uh, and uh, he and I were friends. And I was very excited because Bingo Long had been written by Barwood and Robbins, who had written Sugarland Express, his first movie. And in those days, it was Stevie or Steve, not Steven. And, uh, you know, he was going to do Bingo, and I felt there couldn't be a better director for that movie about black baseball, the black, you know, Negro National Leagues in the 30s. And, um, uh, you know, then as Jaws went from looking like a total disaster to looking like a blockbuster, he got harder and harder to get on the phone <laughs> bingo. and he wanted to do his UFO movie which in that time was called UFO Close Encounters and anyway he dropped out and I went looking the guys at the execs at Universal wanted me to use you know John Frankenheimer Mark Rydell and I wanted somebody new because I, I just felt like those guys weren't going to get it. And I was watching TV one night, and I saw this three-hour thing that was sort of on the Manson business called The Law. It was very impressive, very, very well done, and it was directed by a guy no one ever heard of called John Beck. So I called Badham's agent, and I said, I saw The Law, and I'd like to talk to him about this girl movie I have at Universal. And I met with John, and we hit it off, and we kind of felt the same about the script and what needed to be done with it. So I got Universal to hire him, and that was his first movie. We started to look for a second movie, and that's when we hit on 
the Wiz and whether we could make the Wiz into a movie. But uh, he and I eventually split when casting a Diana Ross, which, as you can imagine, I was in a difficult position as the, the head of Motown. And one night, Barry Gordy calls me and says, Diana Ross had a dream that she played Dorothy in The Wiz. And I went, oh boy, you know, because she, as much as I love Diana, you know, she was older. And John wanted to use Ren Woods or whomever, you know, a young, a young, talented black woman. And I just said, John, I'm in a position here that I have to disagree. I mean, I've talked to Universal. And frankly, the only way they're making this movie is with Diana Ross. They're not making it with Ben Woods or any talented young actress that they want to name because a musical fantasy is about as expensive a genre as you can get. So he said, well, I'm not doing it with Diana Ross. So I said, well, then as Motown owns the show, we're going to just have to go the way we have to go because we... I had bought the show for a million dollars. And in 1976, that was a lot of money. So that's when I had the idea for Sydney Lumet that the rest is the rest on that. It always seems like one of the most unusual Sydney Lumet films. It was way off. I mean, it was a great idea. It, it could have been a great idea. But unfortunately, his marriage broke up the night before we started shooting, and it was quite ugly, and he went into a total tailspin. So he was, you know, directing the movie from a very dark place. Joel Schumacher had written a script that was kind of turning The Wizard of Oz into an Est dialectic. It just got darker and darker and less and less fun, and no matter what Tony Walton put in front of him and I made possible or Dee Dee Allen, the editor was telling him he just wouldn't come off this darkness. You know, the movie is still a wonderful thing that it got made. And it's definitely was my idea to use Michael Jackson, basically put Michael Jackson together with Quincy Jones, who was the music supervisor a lot of great history came out of that. Tragic in the end, but while it was going on, it was culture changing, a true culture quake. One of the things that's happened with the Wiz is in black families, just like the Dorothy, I mean, the uh, Judy Garland version used to be a staple of Easter. The, the Wiz has become a staple in black homes at Easter. And, you know, you can never feel bad that you made the largest musical uh, starring an all-black cast in 1977 that, uh, you know, no one else would have been able to get done, that no one else has ever done it again. So I will be proud of that part of it. How long did it take to put together The Running Man? The Running Man, I fired five different directors <laughs> on The Running Man. You know, and I can't even remember all their names. The first one was George Cosmatos, and the last one was Andy Davis. But there were three others that had, I can't remember who they were. They, you know, they were guys who came up and were flavors of the month for a minute and a half, and then 
you know, disappeared. I just had a certain vision of it. And the only one who shared that vision was Stephen Souza, who I owe a tremendous amount to because uh, in the end, it was it was what I wanted to do with the book. He understood it, that we needed to get it off the Richard Bachman, a.k.a. Stephen King thing, guys in jumpsuits chasing people through shopping malls to shoot them and make it a game. So I'd been through Japan and, and uh, recently at that time, and I, I had seen in a lounge a, a quiz show called Ultra Quiz, which was essentially torturing the contestants to see who would be eliminated. It was very Japanese. I mean, and they tortured these people. And this was no joke. I mean, they hung them upside down in trees with bat suits and put six inch biting centipedes in the suits. And everybody was laughing as these people are getting bitten and jiggling around, hanging upside down. They sat them on blocks of ice to see how long they could sit on a block of ice and who would be the last person standing or sitting in this case. So, you know, it was like, it was rough, that show. And I thought, wow, you know, it's, it, it could go to a, eventually to a life and death game show. And I told this idea to D'Souza and he got all over it. And we started to retool the book into our own thing with the game show host being flamboyant. We cast Richard Dawson, of course, and the rocket sled and the zone and the different types of stalkers with their different gimmicks. And, you know, that was all D'Souza and I working together. And then ultimately Arnold came into it. Arnold wanted Andy Davis. I had a, a lot of misgivings about Andy Davis from the get go which only got worse as we went along. And finally, after eight days of shooting, he was like four days behind schedule. And his own editor, Mark Warner, called me and told me, he said, I got to tell you, this stuff doesn't even cut together. You know, so I was running a small company called Taft Barish, which was a joint venture between Taft Broadcasting and a producer named Keith Barish. You know, I had to do what I had to do because I, I couldn't have this thing turned into an out of control disaster. So I went to Arnold and I said, uh, you know, this is what we know. He's this far behind, you know, it's $400,000 over budget after eight days. And, um, uh, the footage doesn't cut together by his own editor's admission. So don't take my word for it. Call the editor, but I think we got to replace him. And he goes, you've always wanted to direct this movie from the front office. And I said, yeah, you want to know the truth? I would want to direct it, but I'm not going to direct it. I have another director ready to jump in, and that was Paul Michael Glazer. And Paul and I knew each other from, we were both directors of Miami Vice. And uh, I thought, well, he's the kind of shooter that you can bring in. And as long as, just like a television series, I've set it all up. It's all cast. It's all there. And, you know, all the costumes are designed. All the sets are built. All he has to do is be a clever shooter and we'll get through this. And Paul did a wonderful job. He really did. And he rendered that movie as we, Susan and I had designed. You know, it predicted among many things, 
reality television, you know, beyond, beyond the live viewing of some form of game show, quiz show, contest, whatever you want to call it, with all of the theatricality and everything. And, uh, uh, you know, now we look, if I'd been really smart, I would have gone into reality television and cleaned up. But uh, who I didn't really, you know, it's like, okay, we had a lot of bunch of interesting ideas here. Uh, none of that's going to come true. And now you look at the White House and what do you have? Yeah, you have a game show host who's the president of the United States. And he's all about what's his tactic? Misdirection. Keep the public calm, calm while he points to he's been wiretapped by Obama. You know, anything to keep the, the, the public's mind off of whatever problems we have in the United States. And all all of his flim flammery and his Steve Bannon and you know this whole thing is a, a kind of cynical use of the media to create an emperor who has no clothes on. Not that different from Richard Dawson's character, in my opinion. Even going so far as to badmouth uh, your boy Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, he's a he's a fucking retard. It's, it's in my opinion, he's not not a guy that uh, I'd want in a foxhole with me. I'll tell you that. You can't rely on a guy like that. He's a flim slam artist and a corrupt as the day he was born. You know, you were talking about reality TV. Did you get any money from uh, American Gladiators? At least no, they completely ripped the thing off. Totally ripped it off. And again, that was. We weren't thinking, D'Souza and I were not thinking beyond the feature film world. You know, we just created something and then we didn't follow through with some of its own implications. Crazy. Once the shooting started, how involved were you with the production? Are you there on set every day? All over the place. Yeah. No, I mean, I was a very hands-on producer because, yes, I did have aspirations to direct. And B, I, I also was a guy who wanted to learn, you know. So as much as I knew from having produced, you know, 12 movies or something, I um, I could always learn more. And especially on a movie that has the scale of The Running Man, you know, with its you know, the Lakerette dancers and Paula Abdul doing the choreography. <laughs> just the whole world of it was fantastic. And it was exciting to, to be part of that. And, uh, and frankly, Paul needed the help. And, uh, and it, it, Arnold liked me being there because it, it was a stabilizing force. And, you know, he and I always understood each other and, you know, we've had a very lovely relationship way beyond the, the, the running man. I'll never forget, but it was a fundraiser for him that I was invited to. And I, I went to it and it was at uh, the Grand Havana Room in Beverly Hills. And uh, I was there in the back of the room and Arnold walked in with Maria and the whole entourage. And uh, I think he was governor at this point already. Anyway, there were so many people waiting to be, take his attention and so on. I swear to God, this is a true story. He looked across the room, he saw me in the back, 
And he just waded across the sea of people and came back and, you know, shook my hand. And we, he said, it's so good to see a friend from the movie business. (laughs) I got the feeling being governor was not as much fun as he thought it was going to be. (laughs) But, you know, I love Arnold and, uh, and he was really great as Ben Richards. There could have been nobody better. Yeah, Arnold is um, famous or more infamous for his pranks. Did he ever prank you? No, but he pranked the guy who, you know, there's a backstory to the coming about of Running Man. I was on a raft trip down to Colorado with a group of Hollywood guys, including Tom Cruise and Katzenberg. And, you know, we were doing, you know, really doing the six man or or rafts down the whole length of the Colorado. And uh, on this trip, everybody was a Hollywood player except this one guy, George Lindner. And Lindner was one of those guys who had a brilliant idea and had become God knows how rich from it. His one idea was, why don't we make wheelchairs out of lightweight racing bike materials and make wheelchairs light? Because, you know, those stainless steel wheelchairs weigh a fucking ton. So so he invented this lightweight wheelchair manufacturing, and he made a fucking fortune out of it. So he, other than Tom Cruise, he could, he could buy and sell everybody on that craft trip. But he wanted to be in the movie business, and he tried on Katzenberg, and he tried to talk to Tom Cruise, and he was he's selling everybody. He said, I got the galleys of this book. And I think it could be a movie. And everybody's rolling their eyes and rolling their eyes. And finally, I took mercy and pity on it. And I went, hey, George, you know, I just took over this company tap there. Send me the book when you get when we get out of here. So he sent me the book, and I, I read it. And I said, holy shit, you know, there is a story in here. There is a movie in here. Um, so I bought the book from him. For fifteen thousand dollars, <laughs> and I don't think it was two or three weeks later there was an article in Times that Stephen King wrote three novellas or novels under the, the name of Richard Bachman when he was in college, and one of them, and they listed it. One of them is The Running Man. So, yeah, I said that's 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 the book, Richard Bachman, The Running Man. It's got to be Stephen King. So basically, I bought a Stephen King book for $15,000. The Running Man was just full of these kind of crazy fucking stories, you know, just talking about pranking, you know. Uh, you know, Arnold had an entourage, one of which was, uh, uh, you know, a couple of big guys like Ralph Mueller and Sven Oli Thorson. And he, we got, you know, Arnold, this big bump out trailer and, it was kind of party central between takes and lighting setups and stuff. And, you know, he and I were hanging out and, and with Sven and, uh, and Lindner was always hanging around, right? He, he, he was a producer on the movie because he had the book. And, uh, one Arnold was merciless on Lindner. I mean, he, he, he was just, he had the, 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 the kind of God's fool appearance, you know, and Arnold just, I mean, so 
uh, it was a Friday and we were getting near the wrap and, and, uh, George was in there with Sven and me and Arnold and Arnold turned to George and said, George, do you have a Harley? And George says, a Harley? No, no, a Harley, a Harley, a hog, a bike. Do you have a Harley, George? Like a man or you a girly man? I, I think you must be a girly man because you don't have a Harley. And he goes, well, no, I don't have a Harley. Well, then you cannot ever be on our level, George. You will always be a low forehead, right? And so Linda goes, well, I could get a Harley. And uh, so Arnold said, you get the Harley and you come to my house on Sunday. If I don't see you on a Harley by Sunday, I'll know that you're a low forehead girly man. And so, so I go, Hey, cause I'm not getting any Harley and I'm not being suckered into any Arnold bullshit. Right. So on Monday I come in and Linder's there's got bandages all over his face. He's got a broken wrist. <laughs> He's like, I said, George, what happened? He goes, they took me riding up in the fire trails in the Santa Monica. <laughs> and I fucking did a, a rock or something. Next thing I know, I'm in the emergency room. So Arnold comes in and goes, you see George here? He's a real man. He rode his Harley right to the emergency room. You know, it's, just like, it's, it's like, he just completely fucked this guy and was laughing about it. So uh, that, that's the kind of shit he would do. He would do it to a lot, lot of people. But, he never did it to me. Never, never gained me. Uh, we always had this mutual respect and very, very lovely relationship. The cast of The Running Man is one of those just amazing ensembles where everybody is somebody. I mean, just looking at the gladiators themselves, so many familiar faces and so many, well, obviously, Jesse Ventura would go on to be a governor and everything, but so many great great actors in those roles. Yeah, and uh, it was good. The movie was cast by my sister, Jackie Birch, and uh, and it was, Dawson was actually her idea. And I thought at first it was too gimmicky, but then I met Richard and I thought, okay, yeah, he is the right guy because the script needed work on that character because, you know, D'Souza had written him a little too flamboyantly and we needed a guy who could center the part and could have a kind of a jovial polish, but also a little core of evil. And uh, so we went with Richard and Yafit and, uh, you know, Maria Conchita Alonso and, you know, Jesse. It's, it's amazing that the movie would have two governors in the movie, two future governors, and would predict uh, this numbskull president. The strangest bit of casting, I have to say, is the whole Mick Fleetwood and Dweezil Zappa thing, which it, it oh, feels yeah. brilliant now. But at the time, I was just like, what is Mick Fleetwood doing in this movie? One never knows. And this was something that was done under Andy Davis. And uh, I just I just first of all, I love I love those guys, <laughs> you know, right. I mean, it, it was not like I just went, you know what? this is either going to be a subplot that works or it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, we're going to cut the whole goddamn thing out. 
you know, but yeah, you know, in the end I felt like, yeah, it's, it's the counterculture, right? That the, both of them spoke to a kind of rock and roll in a time of real uptightness uh, in the movie world. There was a very, you know, totalitarian big brother state that they were working against. So, so you know, rock musicians and guys with those kind of names, Zappa and Fleetwood, probably would be a, <laughs> a good counterculture duo. And uh, and it was fine. They they did great, especially Dweezil. He was fine, and Mick was Mick. You know, he was that guy with the ponytail. I know that you had directed a bunch, especially a lot of television before you got to Dragon the Bruce Lee story, but I think that's the first one of yours that I saw, and that was such a coup. That was such a great film. Thank you. Thank you very much. That means a lot to me. I wrote that, directed it, and it was my comeback film after a 10-year hiatus from directing movies. So I was very proud of that movie, and still am. Well, and it said so much about so many things uh, before I had ever heard them before. Like uh, things like the scene of him and, and uh, um, Jason Scottley and Lauren Holly at the movies watching uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's. I mean, that scene yeah. is burned into my brain with just how powerful that was when she looks at him and sees that look on his face. I mean, that really helped change my uh, looking at how Asian characters are portrayed in film. Well, that was a big part of my point, was that Bruce, Bruce Lee was a superstar walking around Hollywood being degraded because he was Asian. And I hated that Mickey Rooney thing for Breakfast at Tiffany. I just, I, I just felt that if you put a white guy in blackface and made him be step and fetch it, it couldn't have been any worse. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I, de- I designed that scene to have not a single word and let the images tell and the actors to just tell the story without a single word of dialogue other than her saying, let's get out of here. So I'm very happy that it touched you that way. Oh yeah. And what would, that was, uh, 20, 20 years ago? Is that right? 92, 93. Yeah. So 24 years ago. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's still right there, you know, at the forefront. So good job. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sorry. I was mixing up dragon with dragon heart. I don't know if that ever happened to you. No, that's happened, you know, but dragon heart, we just blew out the doors of technology to the point that the world's never been the same. <laughs> that was the first acting CGI character. And it, we were the first ones to do it. You know, before that were dinosaurs and they ran and they ate phone booths, but the, they weren't actors. They didn't talk. They didn't have characters. So that was my challenge on that one. And I think we delivered the goods. And, you know, somehow when I see it now, I, I'm so proud of it because the visual effects still hold up and the dragon is still more lifelike than, let's say, dragons on Game of Thrones or Reign of Fire. You know, you look at those dragons and you go, they're not as fluid. They're not as, they have no personalities. And, and yet back in, back in 1994, 
you know, I challenged the ILM to give me 188 shots for $22 million to make the first character that could be done all in CGI. It's pretty remarkable, too, when I look at your your filmography and I see, you know, you directed the first Fast and the Furious film, you directed the first Triple X film, and those movies are still with us today with the latest Fast and the Furious coming out pretty soon. I just watched the third Triple X on, on DVD, so it's just, you know, th- these movies are still with us. How does that feel to have been kind of the, the originator of these very long-standing franchises? I feel... On one hand, very proud that I was able to create something that, you know, had a culture quake element to it. Sometimes I wish they would do better with these sequels and, you know, but whenever you can put something out in the culture that reverberates in a deep way, you've got to be happy with it because it's so hard to do. There's so much static and white noise and to find something, to have a dream, and it's a very personal dream, you know, you go out there and you create that thing, and then that thing has lasting value to people, and they want to see more, you know, you just got to stand back and go, you know, thank the movie gods, this is a real gift in a lifetime of making films. Yeah, I know you're um, working on, what, Category 5 at the moment, can you tell me a little bit about the film? I, mean, I know it's a heist film, and there have been so many great heist films over the years. Did, were any of uh, particular inspiration for you? It's the heist of a treasury facility that shreds money. And uh, these guys are an inside job, mostly, where they're trying to take down this um, treasury facility in the middle of a hurricane because they've planned this to go down when a hurricane is threatened along the Gulf of Mexico coast. And so into this heist comes, uh, the heroes, the one of which is the treasury agent who's in charge of guarding the money. The other is a meteorologist who came from this small Gulf town who is down there doing research for the national weather service. And, uh, they they wind up crossing paths for a bunch of reasons, and and they both have separate reasons to fight the bad guys. Very personal reasons to do it, and but although different, coming from different places, and basically they, with the meteorologist's knowledge of hurricanes, he uses the hurricane to defeat the bad guys. We're in negotiation. There's two studios looking at it. And one wants to release it in August, one wants to release it in the fall. So it just depends on where those deals land. Has it gotten more difficult to direct or produce over the years, or has it gotten easier for you? It's always hard, and I don't think just me. I mean, maybe if you're Christopher Nolan or, you know, Steven or somebody, you know, you just say, here's my next movie, and people give you the money. But... I struggle and work hard to get every one of these things off. I'm I'm proud of my track record. My average box office take is <laughs> average is 88 million, and my average opening is over 20 million. And you know, it just I I put a lot of money in the bank of Hollywood, so and I've had a lot of good good times for myself. 
Yeah, you could definitely do worse than an average of $88 million. Yeah, every outing, every at-bat. Yeah, I didn't even know that, but my girlfriend looked it up on Box Office Mojo. So now now I'm quoting it. Mr. Cohen, thank you so much for your time today. This has been Oh, uh, Thank you. It was really fun to talk to. All right, my friend. Be well. We're back and we were talking about The Running Man. Now, I pimped the Beverly Hills Cop episode for hearing more from Harold Faltermeyer. I would also say we've got a fantastic interview with Sven Ole Thorsen. He talked to me about Conan and then came back just to kind of shoot the shit. And I got to ask him about anything. And, of course, I asked him about The Running Man. So I will put that uh, in this episode's notes at projection-booth.com. So definitely check that out. Sven Ole Thorsen, who plays the very unlikely named Sven in this film. So Now, we've talked on this show. I have a real uh, knack, a real love for people hunting people films. And we've talked about Punishment Park. We've talked about Battle Royale. Series 7, The Contenders, Death Race 2000. So I would recommend all of those episodes because all of those kind of deal with similar themes. Now, I brought up uh, Dutch Millionspiel, a.k.a. The Millions Game, earlier, and The Price of Peril. Now, those are, to me, really interesting to look at versus The Running Man. Like I said, I still think that The Millions Game is closer to the movie than the movie is to its original source novel. The gladiator story, I mean, we don't have these outrageous gladiators, but we do have this whole idea of the television studio, which I don't think is necessarily in Bachman's book, sorry, King's book. And we have the, the, the one thing that really stands out to me is that we have these solid gold dancers. <laughs> And we've got them in all three of these movies, in The Running Man, The Price of Peril, and The Millions Game. And that is just such an amazing thing. And I love that it was Paula Abdul who did the choreography for The Running Man. And those, the, especially when some of the gladiators, some of the, the stalkers have fallen, and there's the sad dance. That's probably one of my favorite parts. Do, of do you play Man. that sad dance sometimes, Mike, when you need to cheer yourself up? <laughs> And actually dance to it. Yes. I have all the moves down. I'm doing them right now. It's almost like Tai Chi. but And, and your wife is in the background going, buzzsaw. <laughs> Say their names with pride. Go put on your Christmas lights, Mike. Do it. Hey, lighthead. Hey, Christmas tree. Uh, it's interesting that um, on the on the commentary, Glasser was saying, look, we didn't um, – we weren't inf- the only thing we were influenced by because you're talking about the influence of other, in some respects, other earlier films on on The Running Man. The only thing they said they were influenced by was this show was a Japanese game show called Trans American Ultra Quiz, which mm-hmm. actually sounds like a murder game film in itself. Uh, and there's actually clips of some of that on YouTube. And it's one of those weird Japanese game shows where contestants have to 
undergo various degrading acts like being, you know, having having honey poured on them and being dipped in bees. There's a, a whole sequence where it just seems the contestants are on board an Amtrak, uh, which according to some of my friends is much like being tortured. Um, there's, you know, it's, yeah, it's fascinating that they weren't aware of any of these earlier films like The Millions or anything like that. I don't know how you would not know that there were movies like this in existence. I mean, Death Race 2000 even kind of has a similar-ish feel. It's it's just something that, that's been around for a while. It's not a new concept. It's a fun concept, but it's not necessarily a new one. The thing that's really different about these movies than what we end up with Running Man is this whole idea of the game takes place in the general populace. Uh, these guys are running through the city, be it whatever, Berlin or through Paris in uh, The Price of Peril. But this is all taking place in the city, and then you have to watch out for all of the people who are there. This kind of reminds me of there's a, a, a Black Mirror episode where a woman is running through the streets, and it ends up being, oh, God, one of the most horrific episodes of Black Mirror. And among many, we know how many horrific episodes there are of that show. She is running through the streets, and no one wants to help her. There are these people that are hunting her. It ends up that it's all in her mind, and this happens to her every single day because she – helped she was an accomplice in a murder and is the ask the question is the punishment worse than the crime or not but anyway with this stuff these are volunteers they want to make money it's again very much like the bachman story where if you stay alive however long you stay alive you get money for that and we have this whole thing of these guys can't trust anybody who's around them because they might call up and tell the hunters where they are but there are also these good Samaritan characters that will buy smoke bombs, will call them up and tell them that somebody's after them or let them know where an escape route is. There's uh, In the Sheckley story, there's a, uh, a person strapped in an apartment building and somebody calls up and says, actually, there's a window behind you. It was painted over so they get to break through the window and go on their merry way. So it's it's really interesting. And the thing that I like about the Millions game, I think I like the Millions game even more than the Price of Peril. And we can talk about the Price of Peril a little bit more as well. But the Millions game really plays with that idea of the television. And it deals with these commercials. The whole thing is hosted or being sponsored by this company called Stabling. And throughout the movie, we have these little commercials for these different stabling products. And one of them is this thing called Ellie Lover. And it's amazing because this movie is coming out, I think, what, 1970? Is that right? And the the Ellie Lover is this shot that you get, and then you don't get pregnant. And here we are all of these years before Depo Provera, and what was now reality was science fiction back then. And you have, oh God, there's this amazing um, commercial where it's this woman talking about all of these knives, these cling-clang knives, and how there's a knife for this, there's a knife for that, and just going through all this stuff. And at one point, a guy comes up and sticks a knife right in her gut, and he goes, and there's a knife for people who talk too much. The advertisements, I mean, I loved The Millions. I just thought that was an incredible film. I, the ads aside, I think the ads are terrific. Um, these these weird, almost giallo-type ads, highly mm. sexualized ads. But the, the ads aside, I think what's really good about The Millions, it's very different to The Running Man, 
is that it just has this utter sense of reality. I mean, to it. I mean, if you can if you can suspend for a moment disbelief over the fact that there's a game show where people hunt an individual for I think it's a, you know forty eight hours or twenty four hours or whatever it is or a week, it's totally utterly realistic. It's it, it's there's no glamour to any of it. It's the hunters in the in the millions are basically these three sort of um, middle aged men down on their luck. There's a there's a truck driver, an ex vacuum salesman. And a smuggler who just need the money they're going to get from killing this guy. There's no glamour. There's very little glamour in the TV. There's there's um they, they, there's lots of shots. There's lots of the time spent in the millions where they're in the sort of control booth of the show, where the people who are running the show basically oscillate between just extreme grumpiness and boredom because they have to sit through all this sort of dead air, and these moments of just like you know, great tension and, and being excited when something's actually happening and then they're worried that actually the, the guy that's being hunted might get killed too soon so that'll deprive them of the rating spike they need from bringing it to the very end. And the way that the the, the cheesy host interacts with the audience, it's totally, totally real. It feels totally like a reality TV show. You know, he, I think even at one stage he might even pull the victim's mother up from the audience. And and he, and he just has a quick chat. He has a chat with her, and she's just having a chat back. And of course, the other the other thing I loved is they have all these um these vox pops with people on the street, where they're basically so they've got all this downtime they've got to occupy while the the person who's been hunted is sleeping or you know out, out in communicado where they've they've lost them on the show temporarily. They, the cameras can't find them. So they, they go into the streets and they're talking to all these people about the show. What do you think about this? Some of them think it's great. Some of them are horrendously offended by it. Utterly, utterly realistic and downbeat. Well, the other thing that I like too is, you know, we talk about packages in the television business. You know, you've got these little packages, these little clips that you can use to fill those moments. And you get that now when you watch Top Chef and you're introduced to a chef and then it's like, okay, and now this is what that person is like in real life and we're going to go to Atlanta and we're going to see them working at the restaurant and yada yada. Or even on uh, American Ninja Warrior where it's like, this guy, he's very special because he helps rescue dogs and then they'll cut to him at his hometown and they'll do this, the whole little thing. They have those mixed into the Millions game where it's like showing us those early days. How did this the, uh, I think it's Lotz is his name. How did Lotz get to where he is? How did he become a contestant on the Millions Game? Well, first he was on Godspeed. And we get to see both him in real life, which is kind of breaks the narrative flow, but also him on this television show, Godspeed, where he races these uh, cars at immense speeds and he survives so he gets to move on to the next one and the next one is called The Real Thing and that one is fantastic they put him into an airplane uh, they've knocked him out with knockout drops that are timed he's going to wake up and he's got five minutes and I think five minutes and six minutes worth of fuel or might be reversed to land this airplane and he doesn't know how to fly an airplane and that's the next game and so we get these packages that we get to see of how did he 
get to be here. And those are two other things that they use to fill this dead air time. And yeah, I love the one moment when he gets picked up by this uh, good Samaritan and they lose him for a little while. But then the guys in the control room have the footage and they're watching the footage. So it's this nice narrative uh, convenience for them to show us what this stuff looks like. And again, to your point, Aaron, as far as how do they shoot this thing? That's one of the things that they don't talk about in the Millions game. But that is one of the major differences between that and The Price of Peril, where they really pay attention to where are the cameras and how are these things being shot. That's always one of those things where, for me as well, I mean, I'm always like, how are they shooting this outside of the Enterprise? How do we know? <laughs> you know, like I understand you've got your view screen, you've got your people inside of the ship, but how are we getting this shot from however many millions of of miles off the starboard bow, looking back and seeing you know the crystalline entity and the Starship Enterprise in the same place? Do they have a drone that goes out and shoots this or what? But they really, sometimes to the detriment of the movie, they really pay attention to where the camera is. Not as insufferably as something like uh, Chronicle, where they're really just hitting us over the head with the idea of the found footage stuff. But they really are like, okay, here's where the cameramen are, and here's them chasing them. And of course, these are the old cameras where they've got the, the cords and stuff. And so it's a real pain in the ass. So watching these guys run around and follow the contestants testing in the price of peril is almost painful to see. That's important. I, I really, it, it's really one of my movie pet peeves is when you're, especially when you're doing these extreme TV shows and this is, this is pretty much a genre among itself. You know, whenever you get those and they're on the run, they're on the lamb and there's always a, a camera shot that catches them, but there's no camera anywhere near or they're in an impossible shot. There's, there's no way a camera could be, that stuff will take me out of the movie. And I really enjoy the immersion. I love the idea, the concept of it. But like the thing with the helicopter and running man is just so ridiculous. It makes me just sit back and go, what? It, it really just pulls you out of the movie. Now, when you take it seriously like that, like the millions, that is the way it should be done. It should always be done. If you're going to make a movie about something like that, and that's the narrative you want to follow, then at least do your best to make it seem like it's plausible. I would say, and, and Andrew, please correct me, but I would say that our host on The Millions and really throughout the entire movie, there's not necessarily a villain other than maybe the three hunters. And even them, they don't seem like they're the villains of the film. It almost feels like a movie. But they, they, they're not villains. They're just, they're just these three down on their luck guys. That's, that's, what I'm, that's what I think. The whole thing is so utterly realistic and downbeat. I mean, apparently, um, I don't know where I was reading, German, a lot of a lot of, a lot of the German audience who first watched this were ringing up the um, station to complain because either, either to complain because they thought it was such a horrific thing or to ask how they could get on the show because it was, <laughs> it was that utterly realistic. I mean, uh, yeah, to- totally. I think it's the first of those shows, oh, maybe not, maybe um, – the year of the Sex Olympics, that also spent a lot of time in the control room of the show, but uh, that it was that it was was looking at. But I think this this I loved all the back behind the scenes machinations of how this is made. I loved I loved the the, the uh, I don't, can't remember what his name is the the guy who's sort of the front of house person, the the compare, who's you know as I say desperately desperate for the thing to go on as long as possible, trying to pad all these times out. And they, they, as you say, they also had their own dancers. 
but because it's the 70s, they have this weird sort of surf pop at that sounding sort of anthem to the show, which is very cool. Now, this movie, The Millions Game, was only shown twice on TV, and apparently there was some sort of weird legal thing with the rights to it. And so uh, I have no doubt in my mind that the producers of The Running Man were completely unable to see this film, probably didn't even know that it existed. It was one of those that was kind of in the corners of the internet for a long time. Hey, did you hear about this show? And then finally it kind of started to come out. It wasn't out officially on DVD, I think, until I want to say like 2002 or something. And so then it was only a German release. Uh, some people uh, put fan subs on it, and now it's uh, you know out there legitimately, I believe. So now the next one, The Price of Peril, that one showed or that one uh, was a real movie and it came out, I think it was the year after the Bachman story came out. And so maybe our people saw it, but I would say that the the Price of Peril, or uh, aka Le Prix du Danger, that one, we don't have a, a villain to me in The Millions Game, but we have three villains in The Price of Peril. And it really, to me, it kind of strikes more to the Bachman story that we have the network executive, we have the network executive's assistant, aka one of the producers on the show, and then we have the host. And the host is being played by Michel Piccoli, who is one of my favorite French actors, and he does such a good job. And now this one, he is really doing that same schmarmy game show host that we would see Richard Dawson do. He plays it up so well. He's just so hammy, and especially those moments of faux gravitas that he gives us near the beginning of the film. Just terrific. And this movie, Price of Danger, uh, Prize, Prize of Peril, is so so cynical. It is just amazingly cynical and amazingly bleak and really plays up those aspects of Sheckley's story even more than The Millions Game did to the point where this movie has one of the biggest downer endings that I've come across in a long time. The one thing I noticed that from reading people and their opinion on the movie, it, they felt like it was – which is funny because this one came out I think four years before The Running Man did – but they felt this was a ripoff of The Running Man. And the movie, not the book. They felt like it was a ripoff of, of the movie. And I'm like, well, I mean, do, do a quick search, guys. It's like four years difference. But I get where they're coming from to a degree is that if you saw The Running Man first, they're all the same time frame. And I was able to find a few clips of it. It's it's I mean, I, I get it. It's kind of like the French version of it. Right. So do you think do you think they saw this one? Do you think the filmmakers were emulating this to some degree? Possibly, though this one, it has a little bit different structure. We still get our contestant, and this guy isn't necessarily an everyman. He is a very good-looking guy, and they're afraid that he's almost too good-looking for the show. And they have this debate between the 
it's almost like a hydra this three-headed monster the producer the executive and the host and they have this whole thing where it's like if we put this guy on television the wives will watch but the husbands will be jealous you know if we put this ugly guy on television nobody's going to watch and they have this whole debate about should we even have this guy on tv because he's so good looking again he's much more like the bachman of the book uh or sorry more like the ben richards of the book where he's kind of he's not necessarily down on out uh, as far as his luck goes he has a girlfriend um already she's very nervous about him being on the show he goes through the same tryout process and uh this time there's three guys who are trying out with him and one of the guys they do this whole plane thing again one of the guys crashes his plane another guy won't even get in his plane and this guy manages to finally land his plane though he almost takes out the audience with his plane which is funny and this one though we have this whole beginning section with this character called Elizabeth Worms and she is trying to stop this this television show because it's way too violent. They've passed this act where people can commit suicide, which is, again, right from the Sheckley story. People can commit suicide, but she is really fighting against that to say people can commit suicide on their own. They shouldn't be allowed to commit suicide by misadventure on your television show. And eventually the, she gets ruled against. There's this little hearing that they have. And I thought that this would come back later on in the show. I kept thinking that um, she would turn into this like Thomasina Payne character from Death Race 2000 where people would try to stop the show. And there's even – again, our main character gets picked up by this woman. And I was like, oh, this is going to be kind of like you know Thomasina Payne's niece and she's going to try to – you know sabotage the show but instead she's actually the producer of the show and she's the one who outs the show as being 100% rigged that all the good Samaritans are not actually good Samaritans that they are all paid by the show that everything is all planned out that they to your point earlier Andrew talking about not wanting to end the show too early because the ratings would go down they plan it out so that he is going to last until five minutes before the end of the show and she spills this whole thing to him and then he goes absolutely fucking nuts he doesn't want to play the game anymore which fucking surprise surprise right and then to the point where he comes into the studio kind of like ben richards in the running man he comes into the studio with his gun and well actually he starts taking out the other gladiators and they're like no that's illegal you can't kill the other gladiators even in self-defense which is kind of odd and he manages to kill all of the gladiators manages to make it into the studio and takes uh, Piccoli hostage, rips off his hairpiece, and then he says, this is all rigged. This is all 100% rigged. You know, it's kind of like the the big broadcast at the end of the running man he's like this is all rigged and this woman this producer she stopped me and she's she works for the show and she comes out and she's like yeah i have a confession to make this guy's completely crazy and we're gonna go get him some psychiatric help and these guys attack him throw a straitjacket on him and throw him into the back of the ambulance and that's where the fucking movie ends it's like oh my god you gotta be crazy what that's how this movie ends this is the bleakest ending i've seen in forever it's very much though on track with the sort of all these sort of murder murder quiz game films is that 
they're all portrayed as a sort of equal opportunity merit-based game, but actually they're not. And it's the, it's the ability of the powers that be to control the spectacle around the game, either doctoring footage or changing end, endings or, or, or introducing sort of, you know, um, left field elements into the game, which means that you really never – and this, this is the case right up to the Hunger Games in some respects, you know. It's hard to break free of that, of that spectacle of the game. And, I mean, part of that, which is really interesting too, which is, is touched on in The Running Man and is also touched on in these films, is the culpability of the audience being part of that spectacle. You know, we love it. We these these games are always built. Everything from the all these films are always built as you know. This is about the TV game that was you know the, the highest rating TV game in the world. Mm-hmm. It's always that that spectacle and our culpability and that spectacle. I think which makes these films so interesting. At one point, Killian kind of breaks signal and speaks directly to Ben Richards and tries to get him to be part of the game. You know, you're doing so well, Ben, you're killing all of our gladiators, but that's okay. We need fresh blood. We need a fresh face. We need you to come on to here and wants Ben to play the game, like play that, that glad, glad handled game. And that really reminded me of the whole idea of the player, the star player who works with the system and who just kind of goes along. You know, the movie would have changed completely if Richards was just like, yeah, that sounds great. Give me a life of luxury. Let me have all this stuff. Let's do it up. You know, and and had he gotten to Richards a little bit earlier than that, I think he might have been able to sway him. But Richards of the story at that point wouldn't have been able to get there. Now, Andrew, you have been working on a project to do with another film where our main character does go along with the system for the longest time. And I love the way that there's that tension between the the powers that be and the star player and how that works out. Can you talk a little bit about your rollerball work? Yes, we've been working on a, mol- uh, a monograph for uh, Norman Jewison's rollerball, looking at the making of rollerball. The facet, one of the fa- I got into the, um, I mean, the rollerball was originally a short story by a university academic, uh, worked at the University of Arkansas called William Harrison. And I got into Harrison's archive. Um, lots of very interesting stuff in there. One of the interesting things that comes out of about the reception of the film rollerball, obviously did not do brilliantly in America or did, did well upon release, but was, Jewison and Harrison were, were trying to basically helm a film about their take on increasing violence in sport and, and in American um, political culture. And it was, and they wanted to sort of do a film about this incredibly violent game in the future that was sponsored by corporations as a metaphor for what was going on in the, in the US and obviously much of the Western world in the, in the first half of the 70s. But it was sort of seen as was received by and large in America at least as a sort of exploitation film, a hype of an ultra-violent exploitation film. And one of the things that is really interesting in the reception is that they do such a good job of the game scenes in Rollerball. They spend a large amount of money on it. They, 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 they rent this, um, this, this track in Munich that used to be, was used in the 1972 Munich agreement, um, Olympics. And they spend, they get all these stuntmen to come and do the, the rollerball scenes and they fly in these, these junkets of journalists to come in, 
um, not just one or two. There's these massive waves of journalists who are coming and reporting in the game. And the, and the one thing that all their reportage comments on, because all the clips are in William Harrison's um, archive, is, wow, this is really realistic. This could happen for real. So the the game the, the the film is sort of launched into the world, and there's all these, these these all these entrepreneurs. Norman Jewison, who I interviewed for the book, talks about all these entrepreneurs that approached him and Harrison with the, with an idea to buy the rights to the game because they wanted they wanted to play it for real. Uh, there were all these um, meaty sort of uh, panel shows on the BBC and on American television networks where they were having very serious discussions about, well, you know, this could happen for real. Why is that? What does it mean about sport? So for a little while there, it sort of looked like it was could have been a thing. It would probably happen nowadays given the way that they sort of commercialise films these days. You never know. But back then, of course, it all snuffed out very quickly. But that's that's something that I think is very – it's an interesting real-life um, parallel to the film and something that you also often see with these films. The two things I think that rollerball, I mean, I call them in this monograph, I call them murder game films, and I sort of differentiate them a bit from people hunting people films because I think the two things about these that I think are very important, and this goes right back to Elio Petri's The Tenth Victim, which is sort of like the, the, the grandfather or grandmother of this sort of genre of film, I think, is that it, these things are that they're depicted as a safety valve for human aggression. And I think the key thing which fits into Rollerball and, and, and The Running Man, the film we've been talking about, and, and The Millions and The Prize of Peril, is that it's a te- they're televised spectacles. So whether an activity is a game show or a reality television program or, a, you know, an overtly political demonstration of power like The Hunger Games, it's not enough for individuals or teams in, in these films to be subjected to a violent challenge. For the activity concerned, you know, the, the, for the activity concerned to channel or pacify aggression or potential dissent, you know, as many people as possible have to see it. That means it has to be on TV. It's a big difference between the most dangerous game, where it is one man's pleasure, uh, things like Hard Target, things like uh, I know there were two island games, and I'm trying to remember which one this was because there was Surviving the Game, I think, with the one with Ice T. Where that was broadcast, correct? And then there was the other one with Ray Liotta, where that was also like an island prison kind of thing, but that was not broadcast. But I think those are coming out right around the same time. I think even Battle Royal is not televised. I mean, it's basically it has a, it has a sort of very sketchy political purpose, which they sort of talk about at the beginning, but not really. But it's not a televised sort of blood spectacle, which is what a lot, which which, which is what the Running Man is, and is what. Um, Rollerball is, and I think if I can just put in a pitch to one of the the numerous films I watched as part of of, of researching this monograph, which I just thought again, I um, series seven, The Contenders. No, oh, it's good. A, a film I saw when it came out and didn't make much of an impression on me, probably because it was more or less pre pre the upsurge of reality TV. But I rewatched series seven, The Contender, recently, and oh my god, that is an astounding. Astounding film. That is a pitch-perfect rendition of reality television. For those, I mean, people, most people I would have seen it, I imagine, but, you know, six people selected at random in a lottery using government-issued identification numbers, and they basically have to hunt each other down through this really dreary out-suburban American town or, or you know, the outer suburbs of this large American town, and it's just 
the voiceovers, the slow motion camera work, the music for the on-camera interviews with the contestants, the the way they prod and exaggerate the personality kinks and problems of the already dangerously close to the edge middle American contestants. Mm-hmm. I just I thought it was quite stunning. Yeah, it is fantastic. If folks haven't watched that, they definitely need to. And we did a great interview. Um, I'm not saying that I did a great interview, but there was a terrific interview with the director and star on our episode of uh, Series 7. Because, yeah, that, that movie. Daniel Minahan, wasn't it? Daniel Minahan. Who, mm-hmm. Yeah. Didn't he work in reality television? Is that true? Terrific um, film. And I think a film that actually owes a bit to The Running Man in some respects. We haven't talked about The Tenth Victim, though. It has that camp factor that so many Italian films of the age do. It almost feels like there are parts of it that remind me of Deju Diabolique, you know, like uh, almost to the point of like, uh, I expect fembots or something to come out. Uh, Ursula Andrew as well, I guess, who kind of with her pneumatic beauty almost seemed unearthly at times. But yeah, uh, Marcello Mastriantoni and uh, Ursula Andrus in that one. And I really, I remember watching it once, but I haven't gone yeah, back to Yeah, I, I don't know what you're, do you say that one? Did I see it? I think I saw it like 20 years ago or something. Cause yeah. that's the, that's the one from the sixties, right? It's from the sixties. Yeah. That is yeah. Set, it, it, uh, 19, I'm not sure what date it is. I think it's the mid sixties and it's like, I, I think it's terrific. I think it's um a little overly, overly long and it sort of drags a little bit at times, but it's like, you know, comedy, action, romance, this wonderful sixties vibe, the futuristic con costumes, the modern interior design is just, Dripping with pop art inspiration, the international travel, the, the funky jazz score, the star power and appeal of Andres and Mastrioni. I mean, all that brilliant Italian sunshine. And it's a, it's this film essentially about these two people who are stalking each other around Rome, trying to kill each other for, um, for prize money. I mean, it's very, very pop art. And there's, there's lots of nods to, you know, rampant consumer culture to, uh, so I suppose what what was going on in Italy at the time, which is the sort of change that sort of cap, that, that sort of modern consumer capitalism is bringing bringing in Italy in in the in the sixties, but it's it's really well worth watching, I think, and it sort of it establishes so it's it's basically about this um, event called the Big Hunt, which is this sort of like globally televised sort of show where people sort of stalk each other around, and you can be a hunter or you can be the hunted. And it sort of establishes that whole thing of these these it's not a game show, but it's sort of obviously a, a sort of a televised kind of event. It's the first one of those movies I've found that sort of use this as a spectacle. It's used as a spectacle to sort of like channel channel human aggression. And obviously it's on TV. It does. It looks absolutely stunning. Absolutely stunning. It's got Ursula Andress. How can it go bad? That's right. That's right. I think it's lit- I think it's literally the only reason I watched it when I was when I was younger. Then it was just on one day, and I was a big fan of Doctor No. So I saw her name pop up. I watched it. I didn't understand any of it, but you know, at that age. But it really it was an interesting movie. It was interesting. Is the word I would use interesting. I know why Fembots came to mind because doesn't she actually have a bra that shoots? She, she dispatches someone with a bra gun, if I'm yep. not mistaken. Yes. Which just seems totally natural in that film. So, Aaron, you wrote in the notes about one that I've never even heard of called "This Is Your Death," aka the show. Yeah, this um, I saw. I caught this at South by Southwest, and I think it comes out finally video on demand September fifteenth, so right after this episode drops, I believe. And it's uh, Josh Jumel is 
he he's a game show host, and it's Giancarlo Esposito's film. He directed it. He's also in it, but he it's he's primarily the director. It's about a TV host who watches somebody get murdered live while he's doing a bachelorette type show. And that affects him at the time. But what he does is he decides to start up another show that is supposed to, in his mind, appreciate life. But what they do is each person that comes on, the contestant, so to speak, is and, – and the reason I bring this up is it kind of feels like The Running Man evolved. Like the next – where we are currently as a culture, what the next logical step would be. They give each contestant the opportunity to kill themselves for money. So say you're you're in – you're – in despair, your life is over in your mind, or you're financially un, un, incapable of taking care of your family. You're just unable to live life. You can elect to kill yourself live on TV for people to watch, and then your family will be taken care of for the rest of their lives. If they go through with it, families get rich. If they, if they can't, then it's kind of like an appreciation of life. But as the movie goes on, you start to see that that bloodlust, that craving from the audience to see someone die uh to up the stakes how do you up the stakes can you can you even up the stakes when you know what you're doing is basically just watching people kill themselves and i and i really believe it's like the running man for this day and age and i i was really impressed with it i was kind of surprised by it because it seems like a it'd be just a generic genre film but i think it's trying to say a lot more than than most of these kinds of movies do and definitely people should check it out. As you're talking about this, I'm reminded of, and I need to revisit this film because I seem to remember loving it. It was a film by Mark Osborne, and it was a short film called Dropping Out. And I want to say that that was kind of a, it's kind of sick in a good way because you want him to do it as you're watching it and you're kind of rooting for him to do it. Like I said, a little disturbing, but also hilarious. So Imagine that. Mark Osborne, people might know him a little bit better by uh, some of the other work that he's done, such as Kung Fu Panda, the SpongeBob SquarePants movie, and the Petit Prince movie. So, yeah, he uh, he also makes really kind of sick shorts in the uh, in the meantime. So one thing that keeps coming into my head as a result of what Aaron said earlier is Mike in a dynamo suit. I can't get that. I can't get that out of my head. <laughs> I don't want that in my head. I already already got it out. I can see that. Poor Dynamo. I mean, the guy just he can't win for losing. Can we talk about how lame all of them are? I, I don't really think any of them were that were really that spectacular. You got you got Sub Zero who just dies the worst way. And what is he? A fat? He's a he's a he's a fat guy who can who can play hockey. I mean, that's really that's his lethal skill. He's just going to run people down in a hockey rink. Exploding right. hockey pucks. <laughs> it's just such a weird thing. And then Dynamo, we already talked about how awful he is. And then Jim Brown, just totally wasted. Other than a leading rusher joke. I think that's literally all he was there for. I really was hoping for a lot more Jim Brown. I mean, when he finally gets called into the game, because th- there are these – two levels of stalker there's our normal everyday stalker and it feels like fireball and captain freedom are the older retired stalkers and it seems like it should have been a bigger deal i mean he does get a pretty spectacular entrance when he comes in his jetpack and he's got his you know flamethrower and looking at it it looks really like james brown is using or sorry jim brown is throwing some flame around here 
But yeah, he just he dies so fast, and that's about it. And it, it then yeah, Captain Freedom never gets to fight other than the computer simulation, and it's like oh man. But yet Buzzsaw, at least Buzzsaw, when he's doing his fight, he gets that amazing Harold Faltermeyer score with those. The only thing that I can say is hot licks from those that guitar going. You know, so at least he's got that, but. You, you do think a sort of a, a, a powerful dictatorship would be able to invest in a few uh, in some better stalkers, some high quality stalkers. And Erlen Van Lith, who played Dynamo, I recommend some of the other films that he was in. He was amazing in The Wanderers. He was fantastic in Alone in the Dark. I mean, the guy only was in just a handful of films. Uh, apparently he actually could sing opera that's not being dubbed in that is his real voice when it comes to that but when he's not singing opera and driving around in that cool little car he just doesn't have very much to do even the rape scene where it's just like i really don't buy that he's going to rape maria conchita alonso in this scene so i mean he's so out of shape he needs a he needs a he needs a hot rod to get around him (laughs) it's like Come on, this guy wouldn't even pass the stalker physical. Which going what? back to the which going back to the original Backman book, I think one of the that Backman goes into considerable detail in the Running Man, the novel The Running Man, about the um essentially the the, the selection process for uh, Richards getting onto the show the run you know the Running Man. It's it's a, it's a like I think it's about thirty or forty pages where they're talking about the the, the various levels he has to go to that. And people are sort of being rejected at very you know, every every level. There's a smaller number of people who basically made it to the next level, and people get rejected, and they're reacting terribly because that basically means you know they're not going to get the money that will help them get out of whatever life threatening health or financial situation they're in. I love that behind the scenes stuff in in all these films. That's what sort of really interests me about these films: the making of, the making of. I, I wish they had had a little bit more of that, but. The Ben Richards character of the Running Man just wasn't in that position. There was no tryouts for this one, which also meant that his stakes were a lot lower. Like, other than trying to save his buddies, he doesn't have that reason to fight, but then he doesn't need to have a reason. They have to, he basically gets pressured into it. He's going to fight no matter what. What I wanted was you have all these cartoony characters. I mean, they're, they're willing to go absurd, which I, I admire in, in a lot of respects. But you have Jesse Ventura, who is – he's going just balls out. He doesn't give a shit. He's just whatever. I'll be Richard Simmons in – I'll be an amped up, jacked up Richard Simmons, which is basically all he is. Why don't you have a huge – like just a huge battle scene between him and Arnie? I think that was a missed opportunity right there because those two would have been just wonderful together. Well, yeah, it would have been uh, their two characters from uh, Predator going at it. You know, the, the the two governors going at it face to face. Come on. You're hit. You're bleeding, man. I ain't got time to bleed. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about Running Man. So, Andrew, when you are not writing about Rollerball, what have you been up to lately? Writing a PhD at the moment on the history of Australian pop fiction. And I have uh, um, in the final stages of... Uh, Actually, we're doing the index at the moment for a um, non-fiction book coming out in the US later in the year, um, which is all about how pulp fiction has portrayed youth subcultures in America, Britain and Australia after World War II. When is your monogram of Rollerball coming out? Uh, it's been sent off to the publisher and they're looking at it at the moment. So hopefully 
I'm very keen, and I think the publisher is very keen to get it out next year because the film is actually set in 2018, and it would be kind of cool to have. It would could be cool to have the monograph out in 2018. So, Aaron, what is keeping you entertained these days? Well, I hate to follow that up because I don't have anything nearly as impressive <laughs> as Andrew's got going on. I'm not working on my PhD of anything. I host the Hollywood Outsider, which is a weekly podcast where we talk about the latest movie and TV news, but not quite so serious. And also I do Remake This Movie Right, which is a show where we focus on movies that are actually being remade. And we talk about the original film and how we would remake them as fans, how we wish they would complete with its own parody trailer at the end. So Hollywood Outsider Remake remake This Movie Right. Hence your your Captain Freedom, um, Ben Richards power battle at the end of the of your imagined reboot of the running man absolutely and guess what i would make sure that he took that three-year deal he would (laughs) richards would take the deal absolutely and somehow i would be recast as dynamo i still don't get that yes you would yes you you would oh so there oh god yes absolutely (laughs) the christmas tree guy that's all i can remember i want to see a new facebook avatar by the end of the day well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links to our iTunes, where you can rate and review the show. It's very important, rating and reviewing. We know that ratings are very crucial. We've talked about it for almost two hours now about how important ratings are. Don't make me kill someone in order to get some better iTunes ratings. That's all I'm going to say. Thanks, and have a good night. A reality show in the wake of a war All these children are trying to kill her Why do I feel like I've seen this before? This whole premise, it seems so familiar A violent game from the future, what could it be? Oh, now I remember a movie featuring me so Fuck you, the Hunger Games I'm afraid I have a bubble to burst Same film, they changed the name But you know the running main was the first They cook up a program To use as distraction Glitz and glamour in a stupid parade the people are starving, so give them some action. Can't they see it's all a giant charade? It's a trick to keep the public in line. But the concept has always been mine. So, fuck you, the Hunger Games. All the evidence is there on the screen. Two films that seem the same. But one's a shitty version for queens. In the Hunger Games, the camera makes you throw up. And you can't even tell who is dead In the running main, all of the action is clear Take a look at how we blow up the head Does Katniss look great in a tight yellow suit? Or tell jokes when she cuts you in two? Can she punch through your stomach and break your damn spine When the story you tell is untrue? The 
moment to remember our roots. I'm not doing this to bring down morale. I acknowledge the most dangerous game, and I'm tolerant of battle royale. But fuck you, the Hunger Games, who wants to watch us sit in the tree? Mine's great, the remake's lame. How fucking boring can they blockbuster be? Why must you rip off everything that we do? First we killed Lachlan, and then you killed Rue. You showed great disrespect, not to give me a nod. So I hope that you win, like Whitman, Vice, and Haddad. I spit on your movie, this despicable clone. But I'll see catching fire, but Jenna Malone. The Hunger Games. Fuck you, the Hunger Games. Fuck you, the Hunger Games. And fuck you too, too. The Running Man has been brought to you by Breakaway Paramilitary Uniforms, Ortho Pure Procreation Pills. And Cadre Cola, it hits the spot. Promotional considerations paid for by Kelton Flamethrowers, Wainwright Electrical Launchers, and Hammond and Gates Chainsaws. Damon Gilligan's Wardrobe by Chez Antoine. 19th century craftsmanship for the 21st century man. Cadre Trooper and Studio Guard sidearms provided by Colchester, the Pistol of Patriots. Remember, tickets for the ICS Studio Tour are always available for Class A citizens in good standing. If you'd like to be a contestant on The Running Man, send a self-addressed stamped envelope to ICS Talent Hunt, care of your local affiliate, and then go out and do something really despicable. I'm Phil Hilton. Good night and take care. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.